In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God. Glory to thee. Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasure of every good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O good one. As I was thinking about what would be the next talk to do, I got my subscription of, of Orthodox Life, which is published by Holy Trinity Monastery, Jordanville, New York. Like it's a period, like a magazine which comes out every couple of months. And as I was looking through it, I found an, a, uh, a little story there. And as soon as I read that story, straight away I felt this is the next talk to do with marriage. So I'm going to read you the story, and I'll tell you what inspired me about the story and why I've decided with God's help to do a number of talks on this topic. And that's separate to the, to the talks on children, on the upbringing of children. These talks, whether it's going to be two or three, I don't know, is going to be on married couples. Because there's no point in speaking about bringing up of children, talking about the bringing up of children, if the married couple are not uh, united, strong, spiritual. Because to bring up children, you have to be strong. And you have to know how to pray, you have to be close to the church. But that will come later on. But this one now, these next few months, will be on, the, um, on married couples, which is also very important because a lot of people tend to buy those type of um, talks, which to me shows people are very interested in upbringing of children, married life. See, I did a talk many years ago on the upbringing of children, which was talk 22, but I also did a number of talks on marriage, which was talks 12 and 13. 11 was about 11 as well. So let's listen to the story and then we can um, go from there. This comes from the life of Elder Anatoly of Optina, who, was, uh, who has been canonised as a saint. There's 14 elders that have been canonised, I think even more now, but... Uh, and he died in 1922. So just when, after communism came, he lived a few years, he suffered. I think they even call him uh, um, like a martyr. So, it's about a priest, a married priest, Father Alexander, who was having troubles with his wife, with his presbyter, as we say in Greek, or Matushka, Russian, or Papa Vyaz, as say in Serbian. He had loved her very much, when they were engaged, which is, a, which is a familiar story. People say, oh, I used to love, I had a lot of love for my wife or husband, but as time went on, it, it seems to have grown cold. He had loved her very much when they were engaged. His fellow students at the Theological Academy knew about her, how good she was and how perfectly wonderful. He studied, obviously, in, in Russia, in Moscow, I think, and um, his fellow students knew about this girl. They were, and what happened was that he was interested in her and obviously he, they, they, they married. And after that, he became a priest and he received a parish in, the, in a certain district. A church had to be built. The young and idealistic priest undertook the task with love and energy. Soon construction was moving rapidly along. So 
they had to build a new church where he was appointed. And he was full of zeal, full of energy, full of love for, the, for what he was doing, and he put all his soul into building the church. And it was progressing quite well and, and quickly. It all appeared that all was well. But, Bartushka, as I think that's what they say in Russian, but, you know, father, dear father, it's like a, an affectionate work, like Greek say papuli. So, Bart, is that his, where's this Russian? Bartushka, is it? But Bartushka began to come late for dinner. And this upset Matushka, which means presbyter, as we said before, the mother, who often had to reheat the cold food. So why did that happen? Because he was busy at church, he was building away there, and he would come home late. And she, obviously, was... Uh, we'll see now. The annoyed housewife began to murmur and complain about such a disorderly, disorderly state of affairs. At the same time... And what was more serious, instead of her former love that she, that she had, she began to get angry with her husband. Under this stress, the family began to fall apart. Father Alexander tried to justify himself by saying, what did he say? Let's have a look. It's not as if I'm being off amusing myself. I'm building a church. That's a lot of times what men or women today, because women work as well, but a lot of men will say when their wives complain, you're not home. And says, well, I'm working. I'm working for you. I'm working for the family. That's an excuse. Oh, because it happened 100 years ago. It doesn't mean that men didn't use excuses the same then as they do now. And um, a lot of times women now, because women are, want, to be, um, want to work and be in the workforce, they also have the same problem. Sometimes they're, not, they're never home because they're working overtime or they're too busy to take care of the, uh, to take care of the children or be together with their husbands. But this did not calm his wife. So even though the priest said, look, I'm building a church, this did not calm his wife. This would result in them arguing often, always painful and harmful. So their argument, well, they weren't just a little bit of argument. The argument was full on where they were hurting each other quite and quite painful. Finally, the day came when the Matushka, the Presbytera, declared firmly to her husband if you don't change your behaviour, I will leave you and go to my parents. It was at this point in time, or this crisis one can say, that Father Alexander wrote to his friend about this problem. His friend wrote back that he intended to travel to Optina, which was, a which which was and is a famous monastery in Russia, which had a lot of elders, clairvoyant elders, enlightened elders like... Elder Ambrose, which we're going to hear some of his words tonight, Elder Macarius, and there was also Elder, there was two Elder Anatolius, this one was the later one, Elder Nikon, there's a lot of Elders, 14 as I said, but I think they've now added more to the list. So, Father Alexander replied to his friend and asked him to go without fail to Optina and speak to Father Anatoly or Elder Anatoly and ask his advice, what should he do? What should be his priority? His wife or the church construction? I'm going to stop here, and I want you to think about this now, this uh, situation. And I want you to think, I wonder what the elder's going to reply. Hands up those who think that, for example... 
he's going to be against the wife because obviously she doesn't sound like a very spiritual woman. This, this priest is building a church and she's complaining because he's coming late. She should do sacrifice and, you know, heat up the food. What's the, what's the big deal about that? So some of you might think then he's going to go against the, the wife. Who thinks that? Well, it sounds logical, yes, because she's not spiritual. Some would even say, oh, she must be possessed. Maybe she's got a devil. She's trying to stop, or the demons are using her to stop the priest building the church. That happens, and that's what people, a lot of people say. But as we go on with this talk, we're going to discover a lot of things which is going to make our minds to become dizzy. But it's a good dizziness because... Dizziness is good when we get, when we receive, when we acquire humility because we think we know the answers or when we hear that people have marital problems and we think, okay, that's their fault and that's the man's fault, that's the woman's fault, that's this, that, and all these things. And everyone has an opinion, but no one really knows. And that's why the spiritual fathers who are close to the family, but let's even say, in this case, the elders who were enlightened saw things differently. But let's have a look. His friend entered the elder's cell. Elder Anatoly received primarily laymen, while the monastics went to Elder Nectarius, Nectari. So there was two elders at the time. Sometimes there was two in the monastery. Elder, I think there was a time, uh, there was also Elder Leonard, all these from before. But anyway, at this time there was two. So lay people would go to Elder Anatoly, while the monastics would go to Elder Nectarius. Why? This also helps us to understand that people believe that when an elder works, when the grace works through the, is like he's like a, like he's in a hypnotic uh, trance or something, and he doesn't matter. He's just an organ of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't participate with the grace that God is given to that person. So it's like we think that they're robots. Like the apostles, they say, oh, they went around and enlightened all the world. And that the grace worked in them and people believe that they themselves made no real effort or part of their personality, part of their even their intelligence, part of their background, all played a role. The reason why is because Elder... Um, a lot of times, like Elder Ambrose, he, was, he used to be a teacher, and he was—he understood. He also was an uh, in, an intellectual. He studied before he became a monk, and he had an understanding towards those who were intellectuals, educated. While there was another elder, Elder, well, for, uh, one of them, which I forgot who was from the village and he was more suited to help people that were simple. So people that were like village people, simple people would go to that elder and then there was um, the other elders who, were, who had a background in, like Elder Leonard was um, from the, I think he's like business world, the merchant class, and he understood those people. Personally, for me, for example, I'm, I'm born here. So I understand people who are born here. 
have a good understanding of them. I understand, I know what the school, what they went through, what they saw on television, all the things that in, that's influenced them. But when I've got to deal with people, say, from communist countries who were living under those, sometimes it's very hard for me to understand. I find it difficult. But there are priests, for example, in, in Australia, in the Russian church, or in the Serbian, or whatever, who lived under them. And they have a better understanding of those people. So that's why, in this case, I don't know the background, but anyway, the lay people went to Elder Anatoly, the, the monastics went to Elder, Makari, uh, Elder Nectarius. Okay, so he entered the cell. There, was, there were some 10 or 15 people in Elder Anatoly's cell. His turn came, this friend of this priest, and he explained to Elder Anatoly the whole problem regarding Father Alexander and his wife. After listening with his eyes lowered to the, uh, to, he was lowered, he was listening to the story, um, Elder Anatoly shook his head sadly, dear me, what a misfortune, what a misfortune. So, again, I want you to think, what is he going to answer? And then, without hesitating, he said that in, the ca in, in this case, the priest should listen to his wife, otherwise it will be very bad, very bad. So that is kind of what we say left field. You know, doctors think to yourself, how can that be? Some would say, I thought she was possessed. Others would say, well, how can that be? She's stopping the priest of building the church, which is God's um, work. I remember a, a, um, a, a, a man, he had quite a few children, um, six, seven, eight, I don't know how many he had, but he had quite a lot. And he, he, he said to me, his wife would complain, because after work, he would go to different people's places to help their children who had problems, teenagers or older. So he would go there as... Um, I don't know, maybe he thought he was a guru, I don't know, but he went to these, to these houses to help these people. And his wife would say, how can you help these people when you don't even help your own children? So I, because I knew them, I got a bit involved there, and um, I said to him, you know, your wife's correct, how can you be you know, gallivanting around the city there trying to help other people's children to get off drugs or that they're in the street or whatever is happening to them because their parents have got problems with them, but your own children you're neglecting. And he said, well, if I take care of other people's children, God will take care of mine. And I said to him, I'm sorry, but your comment is satanic. And, of course, as was expected, um, really not hardly any of his children actually turned out any good. They married different religions. They most, well, some of them aren't even married. They're just living with people. And his wife once spoke to me and she said to me, they were Greek, that means in Greek that our children became Turks. That's an expression that Greeks used to say, probably Serbians, which was looked at really bad during the time of the Turks for, the, for um, someone to convert to Islam, to become a Muslim. And the, par the parents would be grieved over that. So they say, oh, our, child, our children or our husband or whatever 
became a Turk. That means Turkepsane. So she said, our children have gone that way. In that, they've lost their orthodoxy. They're living with all different... They don't even go to church, nothing. And he said um, that God will take care of my children if I take care of others' children. So I think my comment was correct. And I said to him, what you're saying is satanic. And then, with, uh, the elder recalled a case from his pastoral ministry. A family fell apart for a very similar reason. So the elder said to this man another story similar. That he said, and because of that, the family fell apart. Elder Anatoly said, Building a church is, of course, a great and worthy endeavour. But to preserve peace in the family is also a holy task commanded by God. We're going to come to this theme continually during these next four hours, which is uh, this constant theme of peace. Keep peace in the house, in the family, between the couples. As the Apostle Paul says, husbands must love his wife, sorry, a husband must love his wife as he loves himself and the Apostle compares the wife with the church. You see how noble marriage is. One must combine the church and family harmony. Otherwise, even the building of a new church will not be pleasing to God. If this priest is building this church and this church later on is finished and people go there and venerate, it's a beautiful church and a lot of people are going to that church but he lost his family, then his deed that he did will not be counted because he destroyed his family. On our... uh, The the elder continues, Our enemy, the devil, is cunning. Under the guise of good, he wants to do evil. Now, this is what's called discernment. And this is what the elders had. And you'll see through this talk, all the elders I'm going to read, this is one elder, I'm going to read quite a few of them which I commemorated today during the the memorial prayer for the dead because those who haven't been canonised, we have to do the memorial prayer. Um, and like Elder Anatoly, we could have done a Meleben, a paraclesis, but because he is being recognised by the church as a saint. Not necessarily that the others aren't saints, but they haven't been formally canonised. Now, I love that part there. Under the guise of good, he wants to do evil. You see, there are many things that happen in this world which is obvious. When people a lot of times ring me and ask for advice or ring up other priests, some things are obvious. It's, it's in the canons. The canons are clear. So if someone rings up and says, oh, I've got a child, but I can't, I've only got, I've got four already, and I'm thinking of an abortion because I can't do it, that's clear cut. The canons are strict about that, clear. So the priest doesn't have to really exert himself. He knows exactly what the church teaches. But when it comes to these type of dilemmas, there's no canon in the Rada which says the priest has to build the church and has to be careful of his wife. It doesn't give all clear example, clear solutions. This is what's called discernment, to know what's good and what's bad. Because, as St Paul says, even Satan himself can 
can appear as an angel of light. Yes, that's physically that the devil can appear as an angel of light, as the mother of God, as a saint. He's saying that. But not only does he mean that, because that doesn't, that's not going to happen to us. There's another, there's another interpretation for that St. Paul, what St. Paul says, that the devil can appear as an angel of light, can appear, in, can give us thoughts which look angelic, which look holy, but in reality, he's behind it. So in this case, this looked holy that he's building a church, it seems angelic, but in essence, it wasn't because he was destroying his own family. So the devil was pushing him, as Elder Anatoly said here, pushing him under the guise that he's doing a good work, but in reality, he was destroying his family. Under the guise of good, he wants to do evil. So under the, this camouflage, I don't know how you say it, of it seems good, but in reality is evil, we must discern his tricks, Elder Anatoly said. We must discern his tricks. This is where discernment comes in, and discernment today in the church is lacking. And that's why you hear so many confusing things for different for the same matter. One priest will say it's okay for a two-year-old to watch TV. It it gives you time to rest. So let them watch some Bugs Bunny there or whatever stupid cartoons they're watching now. And then you've that's good for the mother because the mother then can rest. While a discerning spiritual father would say, no, that's a trick because the child will become mentally, emotionally, spiritually damaged. What's wrong if, it, if we take our child to David Jones to sit on Santa's lap? It's only, it's only a, I think that that's what they do for Christmas. Yet, at the end of the day, when your child grows up, and as, as we see today in all the world, Christmas is celebrated, but not Christ's birth. Christmas is celebrated for presents, Christmas trees, Santas, Kris Kringles, stupidities, and Vlachias, as they say in Greek. So that's the, that's the actual uh, thing. Discernment is needed. But some of, some of you might say, oh, that's cruel, you're stopping the children. Well, that's what it, that's what it um, boils down to. Even, you know, the elders, one of the elders... Which elder was it? One of the Optin elders, he actually, when soccer first started to come out, he actually said that in he, he said that he felt that that, that that game was actually demonic because it's hypnotic. And he, and he kind of prophesied and said, this game's going to lead to a lot of bad. And as we see, that it's on Sundays now, people don't go to church, and people have more zeal and love and put all their being into the games and for God and the church, nothing. So does it mean if someone watches a game, they're going to uh, go into hell? I don't think so. What I'm saying is that it has the potential to absorb a person so that there is no room in their hearts for God 
for their salvation. So, under the guise of good, he wants to do evil. We must discern the tricks. Yes, write to the priest that he should be punctual in coming home for dinner, all in its own good time. That's what you should write. Then after a moment's further reflection, so the older thought a little bit more, then he added, quote, to build the church is indeed a good thing, but it can unnoticeably attract vainglory. Yes, it often gets mixed up with vainglory. When we're doing good, he's saying, that we become proud and, uh, about it too. The priest wants to finish quickly that will please the people he thinks. Write this also. So he's saying the reason why the priest is not coming home and he's really putting in an extra time to build the church quickly is so that people can say, what a great priest. Look how he finished the church so quickly. And the, the older saw that his motivation for finishing the church quickly was out of vainglory. And whatever's out of vainglory, whatever's out of pride, causes of, uh, bad effects. So he passed on the elders' message to Father Alexander and all worked out for good. So from this, we can see that marriage is not as simple as we think. Marriage is very delicate, and for this reason, St. Paul in his epistles gives quite a few instructions regarding husbands and wives, and children as well. Christ himself also makes reference to this important topic. Now, I'm going to read through some of the sections in the Bible. I'm not going to explain all of them, because that's the purpose of the talk. I'm going to give you some of the uh, what's been written. And remember today, because of feminism and all these type of things, people are using these type of quotes to go against the church, those who don't believe, or those who are supposedly Christian, who distort the message, like the homosexual message. It says in the Bible, that's a sin. But there are Christians who are, who, um, there are priests who are, who are open about that, of, of, of being that, in the Protestant churches and things like that. And then when they're asked, but how does that, how does that, um, um, how do you do that when it says, when St. Paul says clearly that it's a sin? And they say, oh, no, no, he means that when a person has many partners, not if they have, they're in love. So these people can make you believe that there's a tree growing in this room at this moment. They brainwash you. You might say, but there's no tree. But they can convince because the demons work with them in their logic to come out with the most with 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 the with the um, with stupidities, which you wonder how these people how people believe it. My question is, if it means not for have multiple partners, but it means to have one person that you love, etc., etc., then why don't they speak up against those gays who do have um, fifty thousand partners? They don't speak up about them either. So obviously. They're fibbing. Let's go through the quotes and let's see some of the quotes. In Colossians chapter 3, 18 to 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not bitter and do not be bitter toward them. That one is not a very good one for the feminist movement. Wives, submit to your own husbands. 
before they used to have the electric chair, which was very, very a horrible way of dying, to electrocute the person. That's how they used to die. So, when feminists hear wives submit to your husbands as fit into the Lord, you can imagine, those of you who, who've watched TV and seen people in electric chairs, make-believe, but that's how they are. Husbands, love your wives and do not bitter and not be bitter towards them. It's like they, you are passing through thousands of voltage of electricity. Why? Because they don't like it. Well, let's see. What does it really mean? Is it something which is putting the woman down? The first epistle of Timothy, of St. Paul to Timothy, chapter 2, line 11 to, lines 11 to 15, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So St. Paul's saying Adam was formed first, the man was formed first, later came Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. That's what the Holy Fathers teach. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. That's another couple of thousand voltages. Um, nevertheless, should be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with self-control. We have to address all these issues. I'm not going to go into it now. We're going to go through it slowly. But that's important. Then we go to 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, line 3, and lines 8 to 12. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Dot, 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 there, for some missing. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man... Even so, man also comes through woman, because men are born of women, but all things are from God. What does all that mean? That's the purpose of the talk. So. But as I said, those type of words there are not accepted in today's society. Now, let's, let's see what Christ's words are. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This is this whole thing about changing what's meant by marriage, that marriage should be a, a, a union between two people. That's the whole thing of what they're trying to do all over the world in Western societies. But... Um, how do they justify Well, I wouldn't advise you to read their rubbish, but I have touched on some of it, and you just cannot believe how people are deluded to even change the words of Christ that he said clearly, man, female, etc. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All that will be explained, God willing, in the coming talks about divorce and 
second marriages and third marriages because the church does give permission in, uh, with, a, with a lot of um, regret for a second marriage and a third marriage. That's why the second marriage ceremony and the third marriage ceremony are not services of like beauty and glory but they're more repentant services because Christ himself says that you shouldn't get remarried. So therefore, out of economy, the church allows it and things like that. But anyway, we'll come to that later. Ephesians chapter 5, line 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Of course, they don't, they ignore that part. Just like St. John Christum says that Christ died for the church. That's how the man must be willing to die and sacrifice himself for his wife. They forget that. They only look at the first part which says, wives submit to your husbands. But we have to understand what does that mean in an orthodox? Does that mean that women are slaves? Does that mean that they're forced as they, as they are? And remember, it was the orthodox church that gave, before, the, before uh, Christ came, women had n- no rights Women were looked at as similar to animals and it was the church which raised the woman and remember that out of, apart from Christ as being um, the incarnate God, the next person is the mother of God which is a woman, which is above the angels, more honourable than the angels and more glorious. Not another man but a woman. So, of course, some of these feminists get upset and they say, well, why does we have to say that God became a man? See how satanic they become when you have this pride. When you start changing around the scriptures and the teachings there, then you start to even question God and say, why did you choose to, why did you choose the male sex to come into the earth on, on to, to, be, to be born? Why didn't you choose the female sex? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any other thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their uh, own wives as their own bodies, we're going to come to that later on, what does that mean? He who loves his wife loves himself. The clue is what we, what we read earlier on that Christ said, because the two become one. So if a man hates his wife, really hates himself, because the two are one. If the wife hates her husband, she hates herself. And that's why those people that hate their spouses are miserable. Because in reality, they hate in themselves because the other person is part of them. They're, they're one. But anyway, that's a little clue there. Uh, for, no ma- for no one even hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's in the Western translation. But the Greek translation, remember that the Bible was written in Greek, the, 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 the correct word is not really respect. The correct word is let the wife see that she fears her husband. Then we come to what does fear mean? That she trembles, that she's scared of being hit, that she's scared if she does something wrong she'll be told off. Is that what fear means? But then again we're told to fear God. Does that make us... Uh, slaves? Does that make us feel that God's there every minute and is going to punish us for every wrong thing that we do? There are some people that are disturbed that feel like that, but that's not what it is. So everyone's commanded to fear God, but that fear has a special meaning. And this fear doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. And that's what we need to find out in these next talks. St. John Chrysostom explains it beautifully, what does this fear mean? But then again, if, if you remember some of you, that children were taught to have fear for their parents, which is a, correct. It's a, kind, it's a respect with a fear. And this fear, we don't say that that's bad in the case of children to fear their parents, which has, as I said, a special meaning. And I think... Obviously, it means the same thing when a woman fears her husband. It doesn't mean what we think. But that will come out later on. 1 Corinthians 7.16, which I think is the last one. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. I went through a lot of that in talk 11. Better to... Marry than to burn with passion. I went into a lot of detail of that. That one of the purposes of marriage is to avoid sexual immorality. St. Paul says, better if you can stay like I am, meaning himself, that he, was, that he, was, he wasn't married. And many monastics later on kept themselves pure uh, in, in, with virginity and things like that. And St. Paul says, that's, that's the best, but if you can't do it, then get married. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. Doesn't sound like there's much fear there, does there? The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. This, that means sexually. That a woman does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. And then the, these feminists go crazy, but they don't read the next part. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's all going to be explained in these coming talks. That each person's body is not their own, so... Anyway, we'll explain all that as time goes on. And St. John Chrysostom says it beautifully. In this case, it's equality in the sense of 
this sexual thing. It's equality. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. In other words, do not deny the other their sexual rights with consent for a time. If you are going to do that, it has to be that you both agree that you may give your souls to fasting and prayer. That's why the church has those periods of time where, there's, where sexual contact is not allowed. Um, and come together again so Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, don't leave it too long because of your lack of self-control, meaning that people can't go, a lot of people can't go for too long, and they could actually be tempted by the devil and do something wrong, that they should again go together, husband and wives, in that department. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. Each has his own gift. Some can hold and never have a need of the opposite sex, and they go on and whatever, but others, they don't have that gift, and therefore God permits them to have their husbands or wives to be able to indulge in that particular thing. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them, men, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So as I said, the main reason for marriage is to avoid sexual immorality. Some, some people think, oh, I have to have children. No. Firstly, the, firstly, the commandment in the Old Testament to have children was because there wasn't many people on earth. But later on in the New Testament, there was plenty of people, so therefore that wasn't a commandment anymore to have, uh, that everyone should get married to have children like it was in the Jewish religion, in the Old Testament. Um, but therefore, because that's not, a ne uh, that, that's not necessary, St. Paul's saying that it would be best to be single to devote your life to God. But if you can't, then better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. So St. Paul says, this is what Christ says. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she departs, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, some people get confused. It's like they say, okay, it's forbidden for people to divorce. Then it says here, but even if she does depart from her husband, she's to remain unmarried. And people say that means that they're allowed to divorce because he's saying there that they are to remain, she's to remain, or him, in this case, with a woman, to be remain unmarried. The word unmarried in the Greek doesn't sound like the way it sounds too good in the English. It sounds contradictory. It's saying, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Her husband is not to divorce his wife. So then how does St. Paul say for the woman to remain unmarried? Because the unmarried means for that even if they separate, not divorce, but separate, she is to remain as she is, as a separated woman, but still married, but not obviously together with her husband, and they stay that way for whatever, whatever reason, 
or be reconciled to a husband but still not to get divorced. That's what it means by unmarried. It means not to marry someone else. Stay where you are. St. John Chrysostom even says that, that if persons have to separate for a while or whatever, even says try and stay in the same house and because there is a high chance of there, be, there being reconciliation. Anyway, more of that as time goes on in the next talks. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Remember back in the, the old days, the, and, and that this happened during the communist time too, communist times, which was that um, people were kind of married by secular, but, you know, but not, not in the church, but they didn't believe, and then one, all of a sudden one of them starts going to church, is baptised, and the other person remains un, an unbeliever. And St Paul says, don't leave your husband or wife who's an unbeliever. If your husband or your wife who's an unbeliever wants to stay with you, stay with him or her. Don't divorce. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife because they are together because one of the spouses is holy because they're baptised and they're going to church, then the other person is sanctified as well. So that shows that even though they might not be formally married in the church because they weren't in the church, St Paul says, don't leave your spouse. And we read in the history of the church how many women converted their unbelieving husbands and how many husbands converted their unbelieving wives? For the uh, unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Some people in that time had concern. Oh, my husband's an unbeliever. I believe we're having children together. We're having sex together, and we're having children, but that means that my children would be polluted because I'm... I'm with this man who's an unbeliever. And St. Paul says, no, that's not correct. The children are sanctified because you are, 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 are spiritual, regardless of whether your husband is or your wife is in the church. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. If the unbelieving husband or wife doesn't want to stay, then they can go. That's up to them. But God has called us to peace. Remember that word, because that's going to be a common theme. But God has called us to peace. How do you, for how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, how do you know? If you stay together, you could actually save your unbelieving husband or wife. They are pretty much, uh, there might be some more here and there, but that's a lot of the famous sections in the Bible in the New Testament to do with marriage and that's what the purpose of these talks are with my limited ability but I'll try according to the fathers of the church to explain what all those things mean as much as I can so that people understand so you won't be swayed when you hear things whether on the internet or whether on TV or whether on the radio or whether anywhere when you hear all these stupidities 
where you've been bombarded about women and this and relationships and marriages and, and the gospel according to Oprah and all these things because they've got their own gospel too. Remember what she said. When a man hits a, wo- a woman, you must leave them because once they do it once, they'll always do it and, it's a, and Oprah's gospel says you must leave your husband. But, prophetess Oprah, what's the answer to the following? When we have a woman who's given birth in hospital and she's in a lot of pain, I've been involved with some of those when I used to go and read women when they're going to give birth. Later on, the, you know, while she's in labour pains, the husband comes out and I notice black marks. So I say to the husband, what's the problem? Did you go to a boxing match before you came for your, for your, um, for to give, for your child? No. My wife's punching me in there because she's in so much pain and she's smashing into me. But the thing is, according to Oprah's gospel, does that mean that he should leave her? No, but that's different. It's a woman. She's a guy having birth. Well, sometimes men also have problems biochemical problems as well and in point of actual fact I have I have come across a lot of examples in where women are beating their husbands of course more so it's husbands because they've got the physical strength but women do beat maybe not with their hands some of them do but mostly with pots and pans and things like that and they actually do that but they use other methods They use comments. They use the children during divorces. They use the settlement. They use all these different ways to get at men who at the end commit suicide, a lot of them. And then you say, well, where's the violence against men? So white ribbon, violence against women. Is it white ribbon or pink ribbon? No, pink is breast up. White ribbon. So what should be the, 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 um, the men's ribbons as well? So that's it. But that's, of course, that's how the society's become. See, women complain that they didn't have rights and so now they're fighting for their rights, but what's happening now is it's going to the opposite direction where they have all the rights and a lot of men don't. We will, we will read later on that some women have very sharp tongues and they have the ability to use their tongue to rip their husband apart to the point where they do, some of them even commit suicide. So this is, uh, this is wrong, this, yes, there is, there's violence. And remember as well, it was the church, it was the Christian church which forbade women to be treated like that. If you read all the canons of the church, how strict they were against those type of things. For example, a, woman, a man who is the cause of a woman losing a baby because he shouted at her, not hit, shouted at her, upset her, and as a result of that she had a miscarriage, the canons say that man can never, ever, ever become a priest because he has committed a murder. Oh, is that true? But in the secular world, they don't take that into consideration because they're too busy with these white ribbons. Let us begin by looking at some examples and teachings from the saints and others that people should consider before getting married. So even though this is about marriage, I want to talk a little bit about before the marriage, just to help us a little bit. 
Entry in marriage without any real understanding is spiritually dangerous. As for those who are already married, some of you are already married and some of you are not. So these examples you're going to hear will help you also, even if you're already married. It will help you understand where you went wrong, the need for repentance, and the need to correct oneself. Because a lot of people, even today, even if they've been married for 20 years, could have a completely wrong attitude towards marriage. Number one. A man asked Elder Porfirios, Elder, I'm afraid of getting married in case I chance upon an ill-natured woman, like a bad-tempered woman or something like a nagging woman or something like that, a grumpy, some, in other words, ill-natured, with some woman to have some faults. So this person says, I'm, I'm afraid of getting married because I'm scared of, of that. Elder Porfirios answered, an ill-natured wife might be your chance to enter paradise. Now that, some of you might read it in Elder Porfirio's book, oh, interesting, pass by. But that's very, very important. That is really important. And, and just listen to those words. An ill-natured wife, uh, vice versa, obviously, but we're talking about this now, and vice versa. An ill-natured wife might be your chance to enter paradise. There are people who want to, now this is my own comment, there are people who want to get married but they're looking for the perfect person. Now when I went to Greece years ago there was um, uh, a whole group of these women which I, which, which I knew. They were, some of, most of them were 45, 50 plus, still looking for the Mr. Perfect. And there are men the same problem. They're looking for the perfect person. They're looking for a person who will be exactly like them. For those, those um, women that I'm talking about, um, they're still single. Elder, uh, a, young, a certain young man asked Elder Paisio's father, do you think I will find a good maiden, a good woman, in order to get married with, with comfort? Now, what comfort means is without problems, without friction. The elder smiling replied, if all young men found good maidens, what would we do with the others? Pickle them. Now, pickle them means do we put them into jars with vinegar so they can just remain there? He's making fun. And again, he doesn't like, Elder Porfirios and Elder Paisios are both against are against this phronima, uh, as we say in Greek, this spirit of this perfection. In talk 12, a lot of you remember whom to marry and whom not to marry, which is a very popular talk as well. Some of you might remember that talk and say, okay, I remember that father, many myself, he spoke about be careful of, the, of certain people whom to not to marry. Could this be a contradiction in that the elders are saying, well, if people have got faults, you can marry them because that will help you to be saved. Keep that in mind because it might sound that it's a contradiction that I was saying 
you know, you've got to be careful if a person is that, then you don't marry them and be careful of this and that, which I got a lot from elders anyway. But we'll, we'll come to that. Number three, a spiritual child of Elder Porfirios related the following. A young man that I knew was considering an arranged marriage. In Greece, they do arranged marriages, which, by the way, are more successful than the marriages of today. Uh, however, he was hesitant because he saw that the proposed bride had some serious faults. I advised him to visit the elder. The elder revealed all the faults of the prospective wife and finished off by saying in a mysterious way, so the elder actually, in his, with his clairvoyance, he actually knew what the faults were. Anyway, that's exceptional. They, these, these are saints that are clairvoyant. You don't go to a spiritual father and give minimal information and then hope that he will be enlightened to be able to tell you all these mysterious things. If you want to do that, you go to some woman for crystal ball, right? That's which is forbidden. Those things are stupidity. These people are exceptional. Even though priests, even ordinary priests, in, a, in confession can be enlightened, but don't play with fire. In other words, don't go there and go... I'm going to say a few things to see if the priest can tell me some secrets of mine. And if he does, it means that I'm special because God has enlightened him and goes around in circles. Don't do that. Okay, but in this case, he, he, because he was obviously a great saint, he told to him, yes, your, 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 this woman has all these different faults. Um, and he finished by saying the following in a mysterious way. But marriage is like that. What? Like what? He's saying that marriage is like that, that you're going to marry people, people get married with uh, people that have got faults. This uh, view of marrying someone that hasn't got faults is catastrophic. But the question remains, what type of faults, which we're going to come to later on, how is, it, how is it like that, Elder, the young man said? Like, what are you saying, that you, I should get married to someone who's got faults? The Elder replied, well, with her crankiness, because she was like cranky, a bit of a cranky person, she'll make you and you'll make her holy. So by marrying someone who has some problem with being cranky, it's a passion, is this elder saying that you will become holy and she'll become holy? Mysterious. What's, what's, what's happening here today? I thought, don't they say matchmakers.com and other stupid things on the ticket? We can help you match exactly. You tell us what you like, you tell us all your interests, and then we will do a special computer thing and we'll find someone who's exactly the same as you. If you like raw fish like the Japanese eat, we will find you a person who will like raw fish and other things like that. Like that couple that I said in talk 12 with the gelato, that because they both like gelato, and what was the other one? Um, and curry, that because of that they said that shows that we're going to get married. So with her crankiness, she will make you and you'll make her holy. Keep that because we're going to see more about that theme as we go on. That's going to be a common theme. With this, he evidently meant that if he married her, he would have to exercise patience, tolerance, understanding of others, forgiveness, and in general, all the virtues. Isn't that what spiritual life's about? 
People have this wrong view even of, of monasteries. They go, oh, when you go to a monastery, it's just services and such beautiful and incense and it's just wonderful and heavenly. Not knowing that in the monastery, people have passions. Now, when I went to Manathos once, it's not meant to scandalise you. And thank God I didn't get scandalised because I understood. That when I went there, I was in one monastery. I've said this story before. And I was like, you know, when you go there, they ask you to, for you to... I wasn't a priest, I was a lay person. Uh, they asked for you to help, so I think I had to do something. Maybe it was peeled potatoes, I don't remember. Anyway, so I was with there, um, it was a priest monk, actually, that was organising. All of a sudden, this monk came in, full of rage. He just lost it, he was anger, and he was screaming at this priest, and the priest was screaming back at him. And people say, oh, no, that can't be right because my image of monasteries is the monks are flying like angels around and everyone's, <laughs> everyone's beautiful and there's no passions. That's what I want. I don't want to deal with people with problems, which is a bit like schizophrenia because a lot of schizophrenics, they actually can't have contact with people because people have too many problems so they'd rather just stay home, go into their own little world, not have much contact with people. That's a mental illness. And a lot of times people today, and a lot of us do, because we haven't been taught to be patient from young, our parents a lot of times didn't teach us, there's this thing of, oh, I just don't want to tolerate people that cause me bother. So if someone's bothering me at work, I'll leave. Or I'll make them leave. If I've got problems somewhere, we have to work out. If my husband, is, he's got too many problems and he's causing me stress, then I'll leave him. If my wife's causing me problems, I'll leave her. But that's not what it is. Now let's read that again. He said, with this he evidently meant that if he married her, he would have to exercise patience, tolerance, understanding of others, forgiveness, and in general, all the virtues. And what does that do? That helps a person to become holy. Now those monks, for example, that were fighting, I would say that by the end of the day they would prostrate it to each other and ask forgiveness and kiss each other's hands, which is what people should do in a family situation. After they do compline, that's what prayer, that everyone should ask forgiveness from each other. That's what they do in the monasteries. Consequently, he would become a saint. Upon hearing this, the young man rejected the match made for him. He was not brave enough to follow such a path to sanctification. He didn't listen to the elders' advice. He gave up the opportunity. See, a lot of us read these monastic books and we look at them and say, oh, look at this and look at this prayer, had all this prayer. And we don't know that, uh, that, that, that wonderful example of um, a person who went to a monastery and there was one monk who was against him. And that monk didn't like him. That monk had a temptation against this particular person. And this person didn't like that. So he left that monastery and he went to another monastery and says, I'm not going to stay here with him, so I'm going to go to another monastery. So when he went to the second monastery, he noticed that now there was two people that didn't like him. So he left there as well. He went to another monastery and there there was three people that didn't like him. And then he went to another monastery and there was four and he kept on going. At the end he just said, look, I think I'm going to sit where I am and work out my salvation 
with these people. These people will help me become holy. What's it, what's it say? Love your enemies. What did Christ do? Love his enemies. So therefore, if we exercise the virtue of loving our enemies, those who hate us, that means that we become holy. A believing young man who had become engaged to a young lady who was rather indifferent to the faith visited Elder Porfirius to get his advice. So this man was engaged, but at the, what happened was that his wife, or his wife-to-be or whatever, fiancé, wasn't really a church person. The elder who found himself before an accomplished fact immediately saw, with his clairvoyance, the weaknesses of the fiancé. He told the man characteristically, onward now to holiness, there is no other solution for you. Now, what does it mean by the elder saw that this was an accomplished fact? Now, it could mean that she was pregnant. It could mean that they had fallen together. It, got a, it could be a number of factors which say... Now, usually, why would a person who believes marry someone who doesn't really believe much? But the elder saw that um, the elder saw and said to this man, onward now to holiness, take her and now struggle towards holiness together with her. There is no other solution for you. Maybe, maybe she was pregnant, who knows. But make a great effort to become holy more and more so each day. Your wife will see your face shine with Christ's joy and will envy you and you want to imitate you. So, yes, your wife doesn't believe, but when your wife notices that you are being transformed by being in the church, then she will get jealous and she will want to be with you. And as a result of that, you will save her as well. The older found the most suitable solution to, every, to each and every problem. Have a two, three minute break quickly to hydrate. And we will continue in a couple of minutes. Go. So, so far, what we've been doing is we've been doing things just before marriage, even though the talk's about married couples. However, just a little bit of background helps us to see how what should be one's attitude before getting married. And one of the biggest problems today that we hear about divorce is... We are not compatible. Um, we used to fight. We're not the same. There's, you know, all these type of things. So, from the life of Elder Paisos, a person said, before I got married, I discussed the following topics with the elder, and he counselled me in relation to them. And he used to say, it is good for a person to get married at a relatively young age. Then things come more naturally. One gets adjusted naturally and easily to one another. One sees that couples who got married at a young age keep a childlike simplicity in their relationship or their lives. One also observes the same thing in monks who come to the holy mountain at an early age. So the elder saying, people who get married early and people who become monastics early tend to do tend to um, be more simple and they uh, they get into that life easier the proverb is true which goes either get married young or become a monastic young 
That's a that's a saying which Greeks a lot of Greeks say, but I think it's a thing. Get married young or get um, become monastic young. Again, this is opposite to today. Let's see what he says. When a person gets older, reason starts to take over and one examines everything and measures everything, also his character becomes solidified. It is difficult for him to adjust. So the older there is saying, not me, the older, is saying that people, the older people get, the more they think things out. And they tend to, their, and their characters become a bit unbending. They're kind of stuck in their ways. And it's difficult for them to adjust either to the married life or to the monastic life. We're hearing noises for some reason. When a person reaches 30, in order to get married, 30 people must push him. When he reaches 40, 60 people are needed to push him. So that's what Elder Page said as a, as, as a joke, but it means it. Actually, the, the older one gets, the more scared they are of getting married. It is difficult, but of course there are exceptions. Someone might say, oh, but there's an exception. I got married at 35 and no one pushed me, etc. Okay, that's, we're not talking about We're talking about in general, that's what happens. There's always exceptions to everything. It is difficult for him to decide to take on this yoke, this burden. You see, they call married marriage yoke. Like, you know, the yoke where... Um, the ox where they put them on their harnesses and they've got to you know, dig the, pull the, the plows and things like that. It's a, yeah. Marriage is also a yoke. You've got to carry a burden. It's difficult. And people are scared to take on that difficulty. You, you, and that's why the word, that, um, I'm not very good at the Greek, but I think the, those um, harnesses, I think they're called zigo, and then uh, the Greek word is uh, for actually... Um, uh, spouses is comes from that word anyway. Um, I'll leave that for the ones who into the Greek. You have become accustomed to living recklessly. So the older saying, those people that have lived single lives for many years are used to living a reckless life, irresponsible life, because they don't have children. They don't. They're not married. It's difficult. Now some of you might say, okay, but what happens if they live together? It's still irresponsible. Actually, an old relative of mine rang up the other day just to touch base, as she said, and um, she was talking about... She's got no idea about religion anyway, but she was talking about um, uh, living together with a person who you want to marry in, in the future. And I said, that's not a very good idea. And then she said, in her ignorance, because that's what she's used to, that doesn't know anything, she goes, but, you know, how do you know who you're going to marry? I said, look, today, I said to her, um, a lot of people have already lived together for years and yet they know what they're getting and yet they, the, they still get divorced. Even though that, And yet the ones who don't really know the intimate details, sexual or whatever, last longer. So that theory, I said, she goes, oh, that's true. She had a good disposition. She doesn't have a satanic disposition. She goes, but, 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 but. She goes, oh, that's true. 
I said, you think about it. It's difficult for him to decide to take on this yoke and you have become accustomed to live in recklessly. You have become like the wild horses when someone tries to put the bit on them. You know the bit, that the, that metal thing to, for the rain? A wild horse doesn't like that. And today a lot of people are like wild horses. They want to spend their money when they want, they want to go out when they want, drink when they want, have a party when they want. And when they later on have children or get married and they're kind of restricted, they don't like that. So what do they do? They home, um, childcare, grandparents, children, etc. They're not taking care of a lot of times of their own children. Under the guise, as we read in the first part, under the guise, I have to work, which is true. Some people do. Some women do have to work because a lot of times people uh, created their own hell. People get married and they go and buy. They they go get a loan. In two names, the bank gives it because they can't be, they can't, they can't have a prejudice against the woman that she might have a child. So they have, they get their loan on two. They might get a five hundred, six hundred thousand dollar loan sometimes because people aren't going to go and live like our parents did in a little house. In the prairie, they're not going to go do that. They're going to go and have, they're going to go and they're going to go and live in a beautiful mansion, double story, beautiful areas with two cars and a pool. And a sauna. And those things that give up bubbles. What are they called again? Spa. spa. That's it. You cannot get married today if you don't have a spa. So they get these really big loans, but then suddenly the woman becomes pregnant. So that's okay. She can get leave. That's, they've got all these things now. But some women decide... I don't want to leave my child. I don't want to leave my child in a daycare centre where, by the way, it was on the television the other night on one of those news or current affairs where they're just saying there are every couple of months in these childcare's around 900 or something um, uh, accidents, concussions, broken bones, etc. So they say, I don't want to do that. I want to take care of my child. What do we do now? We've got the loan on the two, two the, the two wages. What's my advice? I would say downsize. Get something small. And as the, old, as the saints say, better to be in a little stable, in a little house where there's happiness rather than have a big house, beautiful, which we'll come to that later on, where there's unhappiness and stress. Being startled, they jump, they kick and they run far away. So these people who are old, a lot of times they get scared and they jump, they kick, and they run away because they don't want the response. They love the freedom. Now, of course, there are people who were spiritual, were immature when they were young because they were brought up like that. And when later on, when they become older, they actually become more mature. Some of those marriages can still work because it wasn't their fault. They didn't actually, uh, they didn't say, "I don't want to get married." because I'm irresponsible, they just felt that they weren't able to carry that weight, which is a big weight, and they later, as they matured more and then they got married, and that, that, that can sometimes, but in general, better to get married young. Saint Tikon of Zadonsk, which we, which, which is an excellent book, um, 
journey to heaven counsels on the particular duties of every Christian. This is uh, produced by Holy Trinity Monastery, Jordanville. Now, this book is good. People tend to buy books which are fully monastic. So they buy books which talk about someone who lives in the desert and eats bread once every three days and all great to marvel at and there's nothing wrong with reading those books. But when people just read those books but they don't read books which are to do with how to live a Christian life in the world, how to bring up children, how to do relate with your spouses, etc., then what's the point? So you become confused. People must purchase and read books which especially talk about life in the world, the married life. I can always tell a person who's read too many ascetical books and monastic books because they're always talking about um, that, 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 they've eat, that they've eaten nothing all day or that they've had a glass of water and they feel guilty and other stupidities and that sex is dirty and all these other stupidities they got because the saints didn't do that, the, the, the ascetical saints. So those people are very confused. So these books are important. Now what is St. Tikhon of Zadonk? He wrote... Those that correctly enter into marriage ought to preserve love and faithfulness to the end of their life, beautiful and deep. People think that with the same enthusiasm that they get married, that the love that they've got, whatever they've got there, is going to keep on going automatically. And the more that they buy... The bigger houses that they've got, the better jobs that they've got, the more money that they get, this happiness will increase and increase by itself. But St. Tikhon is saying, and all the saints are saying, no, you have to work to preserve the initial love you had when you got married and to cultivate more love as time goes on. Because in the beginning, it might be a bit of puppy love, there might be physical attraction, sexual attraction, emotional attraction, but at the end of the day, those things are superficial. St John Christum says, people that get married just for physical reasons, the, the looks of someone and the sexual reasons, etc., they only last for a couple of years. He said that, and he said that 1,600 years ago. It's that... that in the marriage, there has to be what's called like a, like a garden. You see, like you've got a garden, you grow your cucumbers, your tomatoes, and all those things. And then when the new season comes to grow again, the ground's hard. So you have to till it. You have to dig it up, add some manure to it, get it ready, and then you grow again. And that's how marriage is. Marriage needs like a continual type of like gardening, continually uh, working to make love grow within the marriage. People don't understand that. So all of a sudden they get married and after a few years they notice, oh, I don't have any love anymore for this person if they had it in the first place. But let's just say they had something. I don't have any love. So what do they do? They just say, I don't love you anymore. That's the famous words. I don't love you like I used to do. I don't love you this and that. Even before they used to say, I, I love you. I love you more than anyone. I can't live without you. Then later on, they, they change the words. I hate you and I want to live without you. 
So that's the actual how it can change within a few years. Now, some of you might say, oh, but how come people get married and then they might divorce up to 25 years? Because the children are grown up. See, the children, as they're growing up, they're distractions. So the couple is not really dealing with each other. So the children are in the way, you see. But once those children get up, get old and this and that, then suddenly the, these, these people, husband and wife, have to deal with each other. And then they realise that they can't hide it anymore, they can't use distractions, and then they say, I don't love you anymore, which really the love stopped many years before that. So it's work. But people who have watched television and these films of romantic love and are confused. And they look on the TV of how people love each other, they look at the sexual aspect there and the whole thing which is all false, and they think that's how it's going to be. Then they enter the marriage, and suddenly they've got to deal with nappies and diarrheas and vomit and the faults of their spouse. They, they, they all of a sudden they go, but this is not what I saw on television. Number seven, a couple must remain inseparable to the end. St. Tikon says, again, the husband must not abandon his wife nor the wife, her husband, until death. But according to their vow, their promise and consent, they must remain inseparable to the end. People don't have that in their brain to understand the seriousness of separating from your spouse. So people enter the marriage with this thing of, well, we can do like a... Um, we can do like a... Um, we'll see how we go. We get married and if it doesn't work, we just separate. Doesn't matter if there's children involved. They even do those prenuptial things, those agreements. If they've got a lot of money, okay. So what have you got? I got I, I, you know, because some of them get married at 45. So I've made in my up to four, my 45th year. I've got a couple of units. What have you got? Yeah, I've got a couple of uh, things there too. A couple of villas and all that. Okay. So let's get married, and we'll have an agreement. If we divorce, then we'll separate. Then we'll just separate. I'll keep my stuff. You keep your stuff. In other words, where's that thing there which the saints say, under no condition must you get divorced. Of course, there are adultery, which we'll come to that when we do the section on divorce next month or so. But in general, we don't do that. So people have to end it, just like when someone becomes a monk. When I became a, 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 a monk, one of the things I knew that if I was, I made a promise, and if I was to uh, leave my monasticism, take off the black, go back to being an ordinary lay person, that I'd go to hell. Because I made a promise to stay where I am. So it's very fearful, the same as married people. They have to know that when they go to the church, that they are making a promise before God that they're going to stay with that spouse, whatever happens. But today, really nearly people are just divorcing for trivial things as well. Number eight, Elder Porfirio said the, said the following regarding marriage. You know happiness within marriage exists, but it has a precondition. The husband and wife will have to first acquire spiritual fortune by loving Christ and keeping his commandments. See, that to me is, is, is so 
great. For a husband and a wife to love each other and to have true happiness, because there's, of course there's joys and happiness, but I mean happiness, spiritual happiness, the happiness within the marriage, they need to have Christ in their hearts and Christ comes into someone's heart by doing the commandments, obviously communing often, confessing often, praying and leading a spiritual life. That's why people that are leading spiritual lives tend to make their marriages work. The others find it very difficult because it was Christ who joined the man and the woman in the church and it is Christ who keeps the man and the woman together if the man and the woman are seeking him. In that way, they will come to truly love each other and be happy. In, otherwise, they will be poor in soul. They won't be able to give love. They will have demonic problems and, they will make, and that, that will make them miserable. Where there's no Christ, there's no happiness. Now, some of you might say, oh, but I know some people who don't even believe and they're happy. No one knows what goes on behind closed doors. People can think people are happy and all of a sudden you go, look at that couple. He, he, he murdered his wife. I, never, I thought they were happy then. I never saw any problems. Yeah, because they camouflaged it. Don't be tricked by the way, what you see. Elder Paiusius would say, couples must try as much as they are able to cultivate the virtues of love and always remain both united with the third person, our sweetest Christ. So again, Elder Paisius agrees with Elder Porphyrus, same thing as all the Holy Fathers say, that the couples must cultivate the virtue of love. They have to struggle to love each other. And they have to remain united, the two of them, with Christ to make three. Naturally, in the beginning, until they get themselves together and become well acquainted with one another, they will have certain difficulties. This happens with every new beginning. See, that's even wonderful. Do married couples, are they told? When you get married, I do that. When, I, when people come to me and they say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get married, I go through and say to them, okay, let me prepare you. Let me tell you about things. When the child comes... It adds a lot of stress, especially people who have no idea about children. Because most people come today from two kids in the family. So they never really had an opportunity to bring up their brothers or sisters. So some people are... If you've got a big family, then the older children actually help with the younger children. So they're, so they're used to nappies and feeding and holding. They've got some idea. When they get married, they find it a bit easier. But the others who have no idea a lot of times, they find it's like, it's like they've been smashed with a brick. And they're very, they, they find it incredibly difficult. I also warn them about just each other's faults. I said, don't live in this Lululand that you're in love and this and that. Love comes, comes more as you grow together, as you suffer together. They go, suffer? I'm getting married to be happy all the time. No, when you drink the wine in the church, it, the priest says, for the sorrows and the happiness, for happy times and sorrowful times. And people grow together, uh, especially in times of afflictions and sorrows. 
That's how you get close together. That you've been together. Look, look at those war men, the the, the 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 old diggers as they call them, the ones say in the Second World War. A lot of them came back, and they talk about their 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 mates. They talk about the their their soldiers that they were in the army with, and they talk about them like in a way that they were their wives. They loved each other, and they fought together, and they helped each other. They risked their lives for each other. Everything was to do. And when you see interviews of these old, old people, these, these men, most of them are gone now, but if you look at old, there's some interviews and see even some that's still alive, they cry. And what are they crying about? They cry about the ones that were lost in the war, the ones that died in the war. They will say that, that, that they were mates, that they're mates, that they're mates, that they're mates, and that they lived to protect the person next to them. While today the husbands and wives, they don't live to protect the person next to them. They smash the person next to them or throw them out so they can be shot. While these men used to go in front so bullets won't hit their, them and pull them down and put themselves in danger. So their love is greater than the love that a lot of husbands and wives have today. It's difficult... That's something that people have to know. When they get married, it's difficult. And get out of the mind that thought that they're going to be in this happiness continually like they see on the movies. Unnatural stupidities that have no reality. When a student finally receives his diploma, says Elder Paisios, and begins working, in the beginning it is difficult. I remember as in my first year when I started teaching, my job, what I, that was what I became, then I found it difficult. I wasn't used to it. Everything, whatever we do in the beginning is always difficult. And he's saying that. He goes, a novice who goes to a monastery finds it difficult in the beginning. The first few years is difficult. A young man, when he marries, again in the beginning, and a young woman that gets married, is met with difficulties. That's number nine. Number ten, the last one on this section, Elder Macarius of Optin has said, no connection on earth is greater than that between a man and a wife. No connection on earth is greater than a man, than between, a, between man and wife. People think that we go to church, get some type of service, and then go away. They don't understand the significance. The time that the man and woman become one is the time that the priest puts the crowns. As soon as the priest puts the crown, says crown, I can't, I don't, I don't remember the prayer, crown them, my Lord. As soon as that crown goes on, at that time, the couple become one, if I remember correctly. I hope that's right. The priest is blessing continually during the service for the, that couple to unite, for, for God to unite them, become one. And that's why God said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That are the ten examples of some pre-marriage thoughts and, 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 and how, what our attitude should be and things like that. Now let's go to some examples of married couples those who are already married, 
And let's look at a few things and see how the elders guide people with problems. And that will give us an idea because even orthodox Christians, we talk a lot about people that don't even know much. They're orthodox, but they're out of it. But then there's orthodox Christians who go to church and read and confess and commune and things like that and still are confused. Even the priest in the beginning of the, of the talk was confused and thought that by building the church he was doing God's work and that his wife was some horrible person who was trying to stop him. And at the end, he was wrong. And the elder said to him, no, you come home on time you be with your wife. The church is good to build, but greater than building a church is the harmony between a man and a woman. Some of you weren't here in the beginning, so I would have missed out on that. Number one, a certain woman was unable to tolerate incense or burning oil lamps in her house. Her husband, however, despite all the wife's objections, insisted on constantly lighting the oil lamps and burning incense. So she didn't like it. He did. So he said to himself, well, why should I listen? I'm, I'm doing it for God. I'm going to light the oil lamps and I'm going to burn incense even if she doesn't like it. But she was getting upset. The situation in the house became intolerable. Neither of them was willing to give in. Then the husband appealed to Elder Paisus and described the, his problem to him. So he went to the elder, and maybe he, went to, maybe he went to Manathos, maybe he met him when he was at his monastery in near Thessaloniki there. He had a woman's monastery that he used to go and guide. And he said to Melda, you know, this and this. Obviously he thought to himself for sure, the elder's going to say, your wife's possessed. Your wife's got demons because she doesn't want you to burn incense. Only the demons are scared of the incense and oil lamps, etc., etc. That's what people do. So people um, say to me, um, oh, you know, my father doesn't like this, or my mother, or my brother. He's possessed, he's possessed, he's possessed. The older said, calm down, your wife is by no means possessed, as you think, only because she does not tolerate incense, or because she doesn't like the incense, it doesn't mean she's possessed. She does it partly to oppose you, and partly because she has not been used to, used to such things. So this woman obviously was not brought up. When I was young, my parents weren't that religious. They didn't even go to church. But anyway, they went later on when they got older. But when I was, when I was brought up, I um, never went to church. And I started going when I was around 25. So uh, I wasn't brought up. But I remember my mother, I think it was Saturday night maybe, that she used to... Um, so the room that I used to sleep in as a baby and then grew up a little bit, I remember the oil lamp there, didn't really understand, saw icons, what they were, didn't, didn't know. But I remember that thing. And then I remember that we used to, she used to come around with the incense and she used to tell us to do our cross, which when we were young we did and as we got older, I didn't want to do it. I didn't like it. Maybe I was possessed. So but let's have a look and see what happens here. She does it partly to oppose you and partly because she has not been used to such things. So she wasn't brought up with that incense at all. From now on, do not burn incense and do not light any oil lamps in order not to upset your wife and I will pray for you. Again, this just turns our heads upside down. You can imagine that. 
How can that? How can an elder tell this man not to burn incense and light an, an oil lamp? Does that mean that he's telling him to deny his faith? Interesting advice, very similar to the elder Anatolia's advice to the priest, which said, "No, come home on time." The husband returned home, and without saying a word, ceased lighting the oil lamps and burning incense according to the instruction of Elder Paisios. Several days later, to his great surprise, he discovered that the oil lamp were lit in his house and a fragrance of incense filled it. Some of you might think, did they light themselves because he was obedient? (laughs) Maybe it was a miracle and they lit themselves. Thus, by his prayers, the elder helped the married couple and peace and love once again occurred in the family. No, it was her. Some people, what we call in Greek, bisma, means stuck stubbornness. You don't put people in a corner. You've got to be careful because when you back someone in the corner, then they're going to fight. A lot of people fight. Even when they know they're wrong, they'll still fight. It's, it is, it's not a very good spirit. And this woman, for some reason, she didn't like it and she was opposing the husband. The husband was opposing her. The elder said, just stop. I also read in another book, um, which, I haven't, which we haven't got yet, El- Father John Christiankin, a Russian elder that died in 2007, in one of his letters to someone, he actually told someone, uh, because the husband was getting upset because she was going to church, she said, he's, oh no, the husband was getting upset because she was taking the child to church. And the elder told her, for the time being, stop taking your child to church for t- to bring peace into the house. Interesting. So, thus by his prayers, the elder helped the married couple and peace and love once again occurred in the family. Number two, Elder Paisius related the following story. Once a very distressed person visited me, he didn't get on well with his wife. They didn't want to see one another and wouldn't even sit at the table together to eat. Even their little children, they had four, searched their pockets in case their mother had brought anything from outside for them to eat. What does that mean? Who can tell me what does that mean? They searched their pockets to see if they had any food. Meaning? What? Sorry? Poor. They weren't poor. They weren't cooking because what she was, probably she would say, why should I cook for him? And then he would say, why should I cook at all because I'm a man? And I don't, if we cook, we have to eat together. I don't want to eat with him. I don't want to eat with her. And meanwhile, the, because of the pisma, this stubbornness, this horrible selfishness, um, they didn't even care about the children at all. Because to them, it was dog eat dog. Have you heard that expression? Dog eat dog, that's it. That's my expression, what I call it. Dog eat dog. That's the main thing. It's the same when there's divorces going on. They don't care about the children at all, a lot of people. It's just as the revenge, the hate for each other, and not thinking about the children. That's the, the, that's the level of the selfishness. Anyway, so these, these children were actually um, hungry. In other words, they were heading for separation. When he went to spiritual fathers for advice, they would tell him, Patience, you are carrying a large cross. So when this man would go to spiritual fathers, the spiritual father would say, oh, you poor man, you've got such a big cross with, your, with, with that woman. She's, um, 
not a very nice person, and um, it's her fault, basically. And Elder Paisios made, made a comment as he's relating the story, I didn't like this. In other words, he didn't like what the priests said, that it was a large cross that he was carrying because of her. Wait a minute, I told him. When you got married, were you in love? Yes, a lot, Elder. I worshipped her more than God, he told me. Elder Peusus makes a comment about the story again. He says to the people that he's telling the story, did you hear that? More than God. It made a bad impression on me. The elder was disturbed with his comment that he worshipped his wife more than God. He told me, I when I, was, when, I, when I was to get married, asked God that my wife be beautiful, rich and educated. Truly God provided. So he had some, he was a bit religious too. So he said that before he, got, he was thinking of marriage, he prayed to God and he wanted someone beautiful, rich and educated. And he even says at the end, and God gave me what I wanted. And so he told me, says Elder Paisios, all along he was only interested in sex. Elder Paisios interprets that this person was just a, a flesh person. So much so that he almost lost his soul. He was in danger. And this happens where people worship someone even to the point. So when you meet someone who's of another faith, for example, which we're going to come to that in the, in the future talks. A lot of times people lose their orthodoxy because they marry someone of another faith and they go, oh no, you know, like this, this young woman that rang me up, this distant relative there where she said to me that she's met a young fellow, a Catholic fellow, she's orthodox, he's Catholic, and she said that um, they're going to get married and he's okay about it. You know, he said we can bring up the children, we can baptise them Orthodox, we'll get married in Orthodox Church. I said, are you going to do the, um, the blasphemous double weddings? Are you going to go to the, Greek, to the Greek church and then later on to the Catholic or vice, or vice versa? Are you going to do the double baptism? She goes, no, 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 we're going to do only one. I said, yeah, now you might say that, but later on his parents might say, I want them to be baptised. So you do the double And later on, the grandmama might say, I want my grandchild to go to the Catholic Church. Because, oh, they're not that religious. We're not that religious. But later on, you might become religious. And then religion then takes a very big part. And that can be the cause of, uh, of, of a lot of friction. Apart from that, children that come out of mixed marriages usually become atheists. They're very confused when there's fights. So the Catholic and the Orthodox is all these fights, 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 and at the end the kids say, I don't want any of it. So, but people say, well, love is in the air. Love is important. Love is more important than God. So I'm going to marry that person. Like this woman that I've told you before who, who um, when I used to go to church as a lay person, there was this woman and I used to go to some, you know, all-night vigils and that, and she used to go. And as I said to you the other time, she was missing. She was gone. I go, I wonder what happened. I noticed she worked somewhere in a shop that I sometimes used to pass by. And as I was passing by, I would look in to see 
Is she dead? Is she alive? What? This woman was really pious. She would go to all the vigils, you know, staying there all night. She loved going to church. And then I saw her one day and I said, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. Where have you um, been? And she said, I got married. I go, did you? Oh, you got married? She goes, yes. I got married to a Muslim. As you saw me do that, that's how I reacted then too. I just was stunned and I said, right. She goes, I'm a bad person. I know about something like that. Then I was young, like I was just in the church. I didn't really know what to say. But I never forgot that, that she chose, she, she was old. So obviously she was desperate to find someone and someone came along and um, she, they didn't get, she didn't become orthodox. So obviously she obviously became his religion. So, so much for the all-night vigils. But love is more important, perhaps some of you might say. Love is more important, isn't it? As long as she's happy. Happiness, there's no happiness unless we have salvation. Our orthodox saints preferred to die rather than to, to, to convert to Islam. They had their heads cut off and they were tortured not to convert to Islam. They starved. They went through a lot of hardships during those times. The Greeks, the Serbians, wherever they were, there were, there were hardships. The Orthodox were treated as second-rate citizens and a lot of them would not deny their Orthodox faith and therefore they couldn't get jobs at times. They were taxed higher. They were treated horribly because they were Christians. And yet, what do we say about them and we say about that, Paul, that lady who actually denied her faith because she, had, she didn't want to lose a guy because she was 45, whatever she was. So that's what I'm saying, that some people uh, worship humans more than God. When we worship humans more than God, we lose our souls. doesn't matter. Like this silly woman who said to me once that um, her husband was demanding things that were, like beyond, what were, were against the church canons certain um, unnatural things. And I said to her, those things are forbidden. Ah, oh, but he said to me that if I don't do that, then he's going to divorce me. Pray, do not submit, and say to him that you will not submit to something which is against. Uh, yes, we have to be obedient but in the Lord, meaning if it's according to God's commandment. If our spouse makes, wants us to do something which is against our religion to this point, not just lighting an incense lamp, but to do unnatural acts, uh, then we must say no. And if he says, well, I'll divorce you, you say no. Um, I don't want to get divorced. I would want to stay married. However, I cannot do that. A lot of women listen to that advice and you know what? The husband said, okay, I won't do it anymore. Sometimes the woman demands things too. Had another case of that, but anyway, let's get out of that abomination. So, we don't worship humans more than God because they can't save us. If we go to hell, they're not going to be able to pull us out of hell. Our faith and our good deeds will pull us out and grant us paradise. So, God took his grace from his wife in order to save him. 
That's very significant, those words. So God took his grace from his wife in order to save him. What does that mean? Let's go on. Well, I'll explain it to you first. I think God took his grace away means that God, whatever grace that person might have had, was taken away such that she became horrible. Completely horrible. Outside of herself. Now, how can that, how can taking away the grace from this woman be for their salvation or to save him? Let's see. I told him, Elder Basu said, what's the great cross you're carrying? In other words, what's this cross that you think you're carrying? You are to blame. You were living for your passions and an attempt is being made for you to be healed from your passions. You lived, your whole basis of your, of your marriage was sex and all those type of things and beauty and whatever else you wanted. That was your basis. And now God has made your wife to become the way she has become to make you come out of that worship. That was the end of that, that particular story. I made a little note here. Most people today have obtained almost... All they believe about love and marriage, not from the church, nor from the gospel, not from the gospel, or through preaching, but from Hollywood films, books, magazines, internet, pornography. People look at pornography and then they try. Anyway, that's another madness in itself, which has caused a lot. Uh, they, I think I read, did I, did I tell you that in America they had some, I don't know how true it is, but pretty serious. They say that 60 or 70% of marriages of, um, end because of pornography. Popular music, that's where people get their information about what love is and what's meant to, you know. Some secular commentators, whether psychologists or sociologists, whatever, have observed that our 20th century views of romantic love may even become a threat to our mental, emotional well-being. They play, and to, to me, they go, may even become a threat. Not to offend anyone, but... So they play it down. It is detrimental to our mental and emotional well-being. Not might be, it is. And that is the reason why today people find it difficult to marry, to stay married. And, if they, and even if you see couples that remain married, they have extramarital relations continually. Number three... With his gifts, Elder Porfirios knew what each situation required. For example, he said to one married lady, when your husband finds himself in a difficult situation, do not say a word. Pray and ask others to pray for him because otherwise you'll make things unpleasant for him. He won't find warmth and happiness near you and he'll start looking around. In other words, in what he means by that is looking around for other women. He would each time make recommendations according to the situation which contributed to the peace of that particular family. So this woman, so the husband was in a difficult situation. What is that? He was doing something which wasn't right. And in this particular situation, Elder Porfirios um, advised this woman and said, don't say anything to him because you're making him worse and by nagging him or going on and on and on, you're going to make him not, come, not want to come home and then later on you can make him go with other women. So she, he said, just pray. Sometimes, uh, who said it? I think I've, 
I remember some elder that I read, his, the elder said, to your children, even though this talk's not about children, but it was good, speak less, pray more. Today people speak, but don't even pray at all. But he's saying, this, these elders say, speak less to them, because you only make them worse sometimes, but pray more. And you'll find that the prayer is more powerful than even words. And that's what he's saying here. Pray for him yourself, which, and get others to pray for him. Ask priests or monasteries to pray for your husband, but don't you go directly against him because it could cause a problem for this particular situation. In other situations, sometimes the elders say to people, to husband and wife, well, you can correct them, which we'll see in, in, as later on. Number four, this letter comes from Christ in our midst. Now, this book, I, I was one of, my, one of my first books that I bought, and, and it's uh, letters from a Russian monk who was in, like, um, and he would give advice. I always love reading letters to people. And even though each letter, of course, is specifically for a person, we can get a lot of ideas from these letters of how the elders dealt with people. But we can't, you know, say that's the exact formula because it might be different for another person in a different situation. So one woman, for example, if her husband's not a very nice person, the elder might say, just tell him nicely, correct him, right? And tell him what you're doing is wrong. And that can be all right. But to another situation, the elder might say, don't speak, speak to him because he could bash you or kill you because that's it, whatever. So it, it, each situation is different. But anyway, this book, Christ in Our Midst, which is, which is um, published by St. Vladimir Seminary, um, has a lot of these letters to lay people and I find this book um, excellent because not just to monastics, I think it's mostly to people in the world. And I've picked a few letters from there. One of them, I just took a little part. It says, it's good sometimes to remember one's past sins. He, he writes to this person, I think to a woman. It's good sometimes to remember one's past sins. For this gives birth to humility. But when memory of former sins leads to despair, it is clear that the enemy is trying to trouble the soul. So, in general... When we confess our sins, especially if we weren't in the church before and then suddenly we come to the church, we confess all our horrible sins and then we get red and then we tend to forget about the way we were. Now the elders say, no, we should think about what we did because that will give um, birth to humility. We'll say, look how I was and look how from God's mercy I came out of those sins. However, the elder saying here, but if, you, if the remembrance of your sins brings you to despair, meaning that you feel, oh, I'm not going to be saved and all that, then he said that this is the devil troubling your soul. In that case, stop. For, stop doing that. Also, the elders forbid to bring to remembrance sexual sins because... Uh, when you bring to remembrance those sins, then that can make the passions in the person to reignite and cause problems. So that's another thing. But like, we, for example, say when we, when, before we came to the church, we, we were cruel to our father or mother. Our mother wanted help. 
and we didn't because we preferred to go out with our friends. It's good for us to remember that and say, I didn't even help my mother and she needed my help. And that brings, that brings uh, humility. Now, some of you might have read and said, well, if I've said the, if I've repented and I've confessed, it means that the sin's gone, it's gone. Actually, St. Nicodemus of Manathos says that sometimes that we've confessed the sin and 20 years later, we think about that sin and all of a sudden we have repentance, we have a pain that comes out of our heart which we never had when we first confessed it many years ago. We might have said it verbally, we might have been a little bit troubled by it, but then 20 years later all of a sudden you think of that sin and then just have this pain. The Saint Nicodemus says, go confess it again because now it's, there's repentance connected to it and there's no reason why you can't confess that again. But say to the spiritual father, look, I've already confessed this, but really it's hit me now. And he's saying all this is good because it brings one to humility. If your husband stumbles, be patient and do not be upset, but pray more zealously. Remember that you too have stumbled. So when we remember our sins and then we see someone else, like the spouse, fall into a sin, we say, well... That person fell, but I fall as well. So that helps us not to become judgmental. See, we say, oh, that person is uh, judging. Like, look, oh, he's judging. What a horrible person he's judging. But we should think back and go, but I judge all the time as well. So that helps us to, to kind of let the pressure out of our souls. See, some people become so infuriated when they see someone else doing a sin, but when we remember our own sins, like a pressure cooker, you know, pressure cooker. So you've got to, if you have, if they, I don't know how they work much, but did you see, like, oh, they, they let out the excess pressure, so that we us, we become like a pressure cooker, ready to explode when we think about other people's sins. But then all of a sudden we say, oh, wait a second. Yes, my husband, he did that, but how about me? I've done this, this, and this. Shh, all the pressure comes out and you become more understanding and more uh, uh, humble. I always remember you in your prayers, in my prayers, and I beg you not to forget me. The Lord in his mercy help you and your affairs. Number five. Elder Porphyrios once read the following story. There was a priest who struggled to overcome the habit of smoking. So this priest had a passion and he smoked. Now, you might say, how is he smoking? Well, let me explain. Some people smoked before they became priests. And later on, when they go through the pressures of the priesthood, bringing up their own family and the priesthood and the temptations, uh, a lot of times a person can go back to the passions which, once, which they once did years before. Most, bi most bishops, if they know a person smokes, will not ordain them. They have to stop smoking. Now some might stop smoking, go, oh, I want to become a priest, they might stop smoking for a few months, a year or so, but when they become a priest, suddenly there's all these pressures, the passions come back. Now, you people as lay people, the same thing happens. 
people believe that once they've left the old life, okay, I've confessed, I've repented, I've done those passions that I did when I was before I came to the church, they're all gone, they're absolved, they're finished, they're forgiven, they're wiped out. No. Later on, when a person begins to struggle in the spiritual life, those old passions that are still in us start to come out again because they were never uprooted before. We stopped the sins, we confessed them, we, we say we don't want to do it again. However, those passions, those habits are still in us. So later on when, when, when a person comes into the spiritual life and starts to struggle, all of a sudden they begin to notice all these old passions whether it's smoking, whether it's drinking, whether it's swearing, whether it's whatever, they're there. And they begin to start coming out when God permits them to come out. Some people they might come out after quickly. Some people I've noticed usually five, six, seven years of spiritual life, all of a sudden they start to manifest themselves. Now people get, what's going on? I'm becoming worldly again or something's wrong with me and they become shocked and they become despairish. And instead of running to their spiritual father, the spiritual father can explain to them that spiritual life. You've got, to now, you've got to fight these passions. They become hopeless and then sometimes fall away from the church. Because they think, oh, but I used to do that. And now I'm such a pure person. How can I be doing that thing again? See, all this is wrong views. So this person, for some reason, smoked. When he was just about to give up smoking... Temptation would defeat him and he was overcome again. He had tried to give up smoking often using different methods each time he failed. Remember other examples that I've given where there was even a priest here in Australia who um, for some reason he started drinking. I think it was health reasons, as I said before. Something to do with breathing problems, I don't know, and the alcohol helped a bit. Anyway, that person would become slowly, slowly, because he had to drink, just like someone that's going to go on medication and then after some while they can say they're in, they're in pain because so they take those really heavy painkillers. They can become addicted to them and all of a sudden they're drug addicts. These people that were normal people but because they've got so much pain and they took these, these pills, those ones that are very addictive now are the... Are they? What, what are they? The... Um, Sorry? Ex the Oxycontin, it's all those pills, very addictive, codeine and things like that. And uh, some people are very sick and they might have to take some sedatives. And then they're taking the sedatives and they can become addicted to that as well. And what happens is that um, these people, if they're still leading Christian lives, can be humbled by this, by these problems. Like that priest was humbled by that problem. And that beautiful example that I read to you many years ago of that there was, um, um, there was in a monastery, there were some priests serving, and I think there was a, I forgot now whether it was a deacon or a, maybe a priest, and another priest, and there was an elder there who was observing these priests. And he noticed that a lot of the priests, as they were standing around the altar, had dark faces. 
but they weren't known for any passions. They were just ordinary priests. But he noticed that there was another priest there who was known for being an alcoholic. He had an, a, an alcohol problem. But for some reason they still let him serve. The saint noticed that his face was shining like an angel. His face was bright. He was filled with grace even though he was an alcoholic. Why? Because that person's passion for whatever reason, he didn't like it. He was humbled by it. He would repent. So while he was serving, he was saying to himself, how unworthy I am to be serving in front of God's altar and how... Uh, uh, this is really wrong, Lord have mercy, forgive me. And all that prayers helped him to gain the grace of God because God gives his grace to the humble. While the others who were, um, um, who might have had other passions that weren't visible to people, they might have had hate in them or jealousy or pride, which is not absolutely visible as this guy which is an alcoholic, then those people did not have that same humility. And that's why the saints say sometimes it's good to be open about our passions. Don't hide them. Just say to people, yeah, I've got a... a, a I, I remember years ago I was in somewhere, I think, um, in Greece, and I was speaking to a bishop. And I was saying to the... We were talking to the bishop, and, you know, because he, he had a weight problem, so did I... And we'll talk in there and I said to him, oh, your eminence, maybe your weight problem comes from hormones, from a hormone problem. He goes, it's because I like eating. <laughs> I found that refreshing. I found that, I found his humility and his openness to be refreshing. And I find it very stifling when people are always scared to say their, their faults, always hiding, always dodging. So someone might, um, someone might say, oh, I'm on a, I'm on a diet, I'm, I'm, I'm on a diet, now I'm going to do it this time, I'm on a diet. So for example, and then all of a sudden you go into the shopping centre and now they are eating a beautiful custard tart. And you go, oh, hi. And they go, um, I bought this for my, for, for my mother. <laughs> Is your mother in your mouth because there's, some, there's all custard tart there? Makes, it's, it's, it is actually, you think it's funny now, but it's sickening. Be open, because openness gives humility. Don't hide too much. Obviously, sexual things, you don't go and tell people your battles with those things, but that's a bit ridiculous. But we're talking about general things. You say, oh, you know, um, I, I, um, oh, for some reason, I just don't like that person. And then you say to the person, you know why? I think I'm jealous of that person. What's wrong with that? That's why I don't like that person. And you open about it and say it's wrong. I shouldn't dislike someone because I'm jealous of them. So that's why the saints are saying remembrance of our sins, remembrance of our past sins, remembrance of our current sins, give humility. And, this, um, and so this priest was being tormented by this passion of smoking. He really wanted to stop, but he, every time he tried, he was overcome. That gives humility. He had tried to... You see, a person can obtain humility more from a tormenting passion than not having any passion. 
So when we are tormented by a certain passion, we have a chance of acquiring humility, while if we never were really battled by any passions, then there's a less chance of gaining humility because we have vainglory because we think, oh, I'm all right. There's nothing wrong with me. So this priest was humbled by this violent passion that he had in this strong passion of smoking. And as long as he wasn't smoking publicly, because obviously people have passions, and sometimes we have to not scandalise people. And as a priest, therefore, you know, if he had a passion, then that's his business, what he does at home between him and God. But when you go out and vote smoke in front of everyone, you scandalise people, and that's not good. So... This continued until the priests visited Elder Porfirios one day. They talked about different subjects. When they began talking about the priest's family situation and about certain differences that he had with his wife, Elder Porfirios told him that the reason for the friction with his wife was the fact that he smoked. The priest was surprised. He was like, he didn't have any idea that his problem was affecting his wife, affecting their relationship. So, but why was she upset for about this passion? Why was she upset about the smoking? Why, would this, why was this causing her stress? And I'll let, let's, let's, let's put it here. Financial, cost money. That, that could have been an issue. It could have been just the smell that she couldn't stand the smell, allergic. It could have been because of the love that she had for her husband that she didn't want him to die of lung cancer. It could be her own health and the children's health because of the smoking apart from allergy, but also this smoke thing, you know, secondary smoking. Also, it could be because of the scandal, that she was worried that he was putting sins on himself because of the fact that if people knew that he was smoking, that can be causing scandals. So she could have been worried about his soul. Who knows? No one really knows. Um, and not to mention the effect on the children. Yes, drinking. Oh, yeah, so this is like any passion that people have Yes, it might give us humility if we're struggling against it, like drinking, gambling, even pornography, anger, laziness, workaholics, people that work all the time that don't stay home. If we're struggling against it, then yes, it can be beneficial and we repent, ask our family members, I'm sorry, I'm trying to stop, whatever. That's okay. But if we go on and doing it and don't care, then we are not helping either ourselves or the people around us. You know, people around us, if they see that we're trying to stop a passion, people are more soft. But when people say, oh, I don't care, I'm not doing anything wrong, that's not good. The elder said to him, when you give up smoking, you will see that your wife will love you more. Your differences will end, and everything will be as you wish in your house. I'll pray for you, and you won't smoke again. Now throw the pack of cigarettes you're holding out of the window immediately. The priest was obedient, he threw away his cigarettes and did not smoke again. Even though he had been trying to give up smoking for years and always failed, this time he encountered no difficulties in the realisation of his decision. So the elder helped this priest, and that's we see that in many other examples of the Optin elders, where people went there with that problem, and the Optin elders prayed, and also, I think a lot of people went to Elder Paisios that had the same problems. Is this Elder Paisios? No, this is Elder Porfirios, yeah. They had problems, and the elders would pray. I've also read that sometimes the elders would say, okay, how many smokes do you have a day? Two packets. Okay, I want you to have, uh, for the next one month or so, have 30. 
and then for the next couple of months, then drop it down to 25, the next couple of months, 20, and then after about a year, then you could think, so slowly, sometimes they do it like that, and sometimes it just stops. So, and you might say, but there's no elders today. How are we going to get help? A priest, if, is, if the priest is a praying priest, because there are priests who don't pray, there are priests who just do services just because they have to do it for the Sunday, and there are priests who are what's called liturgical priests, priests that uh, um, serve often, etc. That's why a lot of the elders say, you know, put your names into monasteries where they do services every day. There's a different flavour to that. So it doesn't matter if there's no necessarily elders that we know of around us at this time, but there might be in Greece, there could in America, but here they're a bit, they're a bit um, scarce. So it doesn't matter. We ask a priest, a monastery, say, can you please pray for me? I'm trying to stop something. I've got a certain problem. And the prayers of the liturgy can be higher than the prayers, or sorry, the prayers of the liturgy are higher than the prayers of an elder. Even if the priest hasn't got the holiness, as long as you are asking the priest to pray and the priest stands in front of the altar and gives a little prayer because you asked, because that's the order that God loves, God wants us to go to the priests, and you do that, then you will see miracles. Um, So don't have this thing, oh, but there's no Elder Porfirios here. There's no Elder Paisios here. It doesn't matter. That's okay. If they were here, let's run to them. And if they're not, then we go to our spiritual fathers. We ask them for prayers. And as I said, um, make sure that you go to priests who, who, are, who care for your soul. They care for your soul and pray for your soul. If you have a priest which prays for your soul, then you have everything. We might, he might not be able to tell you your secret thoughts. He might not be able to tell you something like the elders did. That's not important. A lot of the saints say, don't go running for people or because they have clairvoyance. Run to a priest who cares for your soul. Run to a priest who prays for your soul. That's and run to a priest that talks about salvation, repentance, heaven, hell, passions, etc. If you have a priest which does that, then that's what you go. You, that's, this thing of running to clairvoyance all the time is not uh, beneficial. If they're around and we can go, we go. But some people say, I will not go to anyone for guidance unless they're clairvoyant. That's demonic because you might because you might later on say, oh, that priest is clever and he told me my name and all that. And then you might find out that Natasha, some Greek or Russian uh, crystal ball lady, she can also say your name. So you can run to her and get spiritual guidance as well. See, that's why don't run to things of miracles and clairvoyance. Run to someone who cares for your soul and talks about salvation, etc. When I went to Manathos, as I said years ago, when I was a layperson, I was at a skeet, and the spiritual father of the skeet, Father Ananias, as he was called, there's Pastor Wayne, a very old man, walked up to me 
And he started to hug me and he was saying to me, take care of your soul, uh, which I've never really encountered before like that because I was new to the faith. I was only 25, 26 when I went and he was hugging my soul and he says, don't lose your soul all because of the flesh. Don't lose your soul for a moments of pleasure or whatever, sins, anything. Take care of your soul. And he was hugging me and things like that. That's what we need. We need priests who care for souls and stuff. Not priests that do miracles necessarily, even though they do miracles because they serve liturgy and the commemorations, but the miracles that we're thinking of is what walking on water or floating in the air or some other things that we read in the lives of saints. Don't go for that. After the priest and his wife visited all the Porphyrios and they told him how much suffering this habit had caused to their personal relationship, it was through the elders' intervention that everything changed and they both became different people and obviously loved each other, etc. So, we've now come to the break, the sandwiches. Okay, off you go. go and do. I had a thought just now during the break, just something for you to think about. I said before that some people had an, have, had, you know, had, have had an accident or they've got some extreme pain and as I said they've become addicted to those, some of those drugs. And some of those drugs have very bad side effects, aggressiveness, paranoia, a lot of things. So what would, um, and, and they can even, people can also you know, hit other people. So what would you do then if you're in a situation where your husband or your wife is addicted to something like that, not because of their own fault, would you leave them or do you have to sit there and endure? Obviously, if it's a danger to yourself and the children, you might have to separate or the person has to get some help, never, but not divorce, because it's not the, the fault of the person and also that's what it means to endure and that this can be God's way of a person learning to have love and sacrifice. What did, what did Christ himself say? No, great lo- no greater love has a person than to lay down his life for his fellow person. So if a wife or a husband can't apply that to their spouse, then what's the point in marriage? So you don't just give up and say, oh, things are, are bad now and, just, and, and leave. Anyway, the next one, number six. One day, Elder Perfidius was passing St. Constantine's Church in Athens and entered the church to pray. The moment he left the church, he was approached... That wasn't his church, he just went there, he was praying, it's a famous church there. The moment he left the church, he was approached by a young couple with, this, with their little girl. They asked him if they could trouble him for a few minutes. Other videos explained that he was not the parish priest in charge of that particular church. They said to him, it doesn't matter, we just want to ask one question, we won't take up too much of your time. The husband said to him, this is our little girl, and my wife insists on dressing her in trousers and I can't accept that. It's not what I want, and so we've come to a terrible disagreement. We've decided, therefore, to go to a priest. Obviously, these people weren't under spiritual guidance, but in them, God enlightened them, and they thought to themselves, well, let's go to a priest and put our problem to the priest. Whatever he tells us, we will do it. We will be duty-bound to do whatever he tells us. That's the kind of agreement they made together. And because of that that promise that they made, or that, that kind of thing, that they, agreement they made with each other, because they were fighting and bickering there, and they had that humility to say, look, the man's not going to give up, the woman's not going to give up, and say, well, let's let, let's let a third person decide for us. First, Elder Porfirios told them that the subject wasn't simple. 
He then went on to tell them that the issue is resolved both in the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Canons. It is also resolved naturally by nature, given the fact that women, that, that, that the woman doesn't have the same nature as man. She differs from him bodily and spiritually. So physically, a woman is different to a man. And spiritually, there are differences. This, this difference is emphasised by dress. Since a man's body is formed differently from a woman's, he quoted Deuteronomy, which is in the Old Testament, which forbids men to wear women's clothing and women to wear men's clothing. And here's the quote just for you to know. It's Deuteronomy chapter 22, line 5. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all those who do so are an abomination to the Lord our God. Now, some people can take that and say, well, there are many things in the Old Testament which we don't apply anymore. For example, it says that you should stone someone if they do certain um, sin. If a woman is found with another man or something, he's supposed, you know, if they do other things. There's all these uh, punishments in the Old Testament and a lot of them was to do with stoning and killing and things like that. So people say, well, what because that's said in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that it's going to be applied now, in our times, because a lot of things are in the Old, Te Old Testament which, is, which we don't apply, which we don't use. But it's not only in the Old Testament, but it's also in the holy canons of the church. So the 62nd holy canon of the 6th ecumenical council directs, quote, no man shall wear women's clothing nor women's men's clothing. And also, St. Nicodemus, who put together the Rada, that's the book of canons and, and rules and all that, the, the, uh, in Greek we call it the Pivalion, in English the Rada. The Rada is the part of the boat which guides the boat and that's the same as the canons of the church guide the church to know what to do and things like that. There, St. Nicodemus writes a whole comment on that topic to do with um, that, that. Elder Porfirios explained to the couple that male clothing psychologically influences women's nature to the point where she will start behaving like a man, something against her nature. Naturally, the same thing occurs when men wear women's clothes. Now, some of you might get offended and say, what's going on? We're going back to the dark ages, etc. Now, this might also just be one elder's opinion. The reason that I um, use the elders is because they are enlightened. And what we notice is it's not just an elder of Greece, but it's many elders in Greece. Sorry mistake. All the elders in Greece, elders in Romania, elders in Bulgaria, elders in Serbia, elders in, the, in, in, in Russia. It's, there is a consensus. They all agree on that topic. Now, if some women want to go against that, that's up to them. But when an elder speaks, one, and especially one like we say that Elder Porfirios one of the greatest elders that Greece has had. Like they said that it's very rare that a, that a country produces el, an, an elder, and he's one of them. There's a very, very high spirituality. Now he says here that when a person wears the opposite sex, uh, the, the, the 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 clothing, they take on the nature of that particular thing. So if a man wears women's clothing, he acts feminine. If a woman wears men's men's clothing, then she uh, acts. Um, masculine. 
I have read this a number of times from a number of holy elders. Now, a lot of you, unfortunately, some of you, a lot of you, whatever, watch those, I've, I've said this before about those, um, those um, Emmy Awards and all those things where the women come to collect their prizes, that statue, whatever it is, some object there which doesn't look like anything, and you see them there. How many of them come up in their pants? They all wear dresses. Why? Because they want to look feminine on the night. Now, we know someone that there are uh, um, some politicians, for example, or some other famous people in America and here that wear uh, pants a lot, and you notice that they lack femininity. And this is the point that Elder Porfirio says, and a lot of these saints, that when a, per when a woman wears pants, they sit like a man, even though their anatomy is different, and they act masculine compared to when a woman wears a, a, a So when women go up to get their awards, whether it's, what's that name, Nicole Kidman or whatever, all those people, they want to come up with their beautiful clothes and looking elegant and coming up in front of the whole world to get their prize. They're not going to come up in their jeans to come up um, to get their prize. See? So they want to look feminine. So that shows the point that even they themselves know that the one does not go to... The, when a person does not wear the right clothing, they do change their personality. Elder Porfirio stressed that women are not allowed to wear men's clothes, men are not allowed to wear women's. The couple agreed with his, with his conclusion and left greatly helped by this chance encounter with the elder. Now, when I came to the church many years ago and I started reading books and I started, I noticed things that just to me did not make sense. And I found some things very complicated or just disturbing, but I thought to myself, well, this is what the church teaches. And whatever the church teaches is holy. Not what humans teach, what the church teaches. That's why I read that canon for you. Whatever the church teaches is holy. It's from God. And therefore, even though there are some things, and even to today, there are some things that I can't do. But I don't say, scrap it. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to say, well, I am uh, um, failing in that particular thing of what's expected from me. So as a priest, there are many things as a priest that I have to have. I don't, haven't got them. So therefore, I don't just say, oh, that's not necessary because I can't do it. It doesn't mean I scrap the rule and say, oh, that doesn't matter like people do today. So some women have been wearing pants from when they were young. Some women, it's a, it's a passion, just like smoking. It's a passion. Don't say that the canon or the church's rules is not right. Say, that's the correct thing. I can't do it. God forgive me and help me to be able to break the habit. Don't ever say that the, that, that rule is not a proper rule, etc. Don't put yourself above the church because when you put yourself above the church, 
you will be crushed by the church. Number seven, Elder Macarius of Optina, uh, there's a, this is a nice letter that he wrote to someone. It is, so he says, and this one is wonderful as well because this one is one of those things which make people's head go around the wrong way because you go, this is, just doesn't sound right. So he writes to someone and says, it is indeed hard to be forced, as you now are, to choose between two actions, both of which are strictly wrong, each in its own way. So he's writing to someone who has a dilemma. They've got to do something, but if they go that way, they sin. If they go that way, they sin, but they have to go one way. They have to go one, one of those ways. So this way is a sin, this way is a sin. He says, um, it, it is indeed hard to be forced, as you are now, to choose between two actions, both of which are, strictly speaking, wrong, each in its own way. If you give this money to your husband, you will break the commandment of obedience to parents, since your mother expressly forbade you to do so. If, on the other hand, you refuse it him, you will violate the great mystery of matrimony in which a man leaves his father and mother to cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what happened here was the parents or the mother, I think the, both parents or the mother, gave some money to this woman and said to the woman, I do not want you to tell your husband that I gave you this money and I don't want you to give him the money. So the, sin, so the saint is saying, well, if you don't listen to your mum, to your mother or parents, then you're violating the commandment, honour your father and mother. But if you don't give it to your husband, but then you're violating the, the mystery of um, matrimony where you, where you and him are one flesh. So that's what the saint's saying. You've got to make a decision, but unfortunately both decisions are sins. In cases of this kind, when one or two commandments must be broken in order that the other may be kept, the father's counsel the breaking of the lesser sin. So when you've got two, you've got, when, you've got, when you've come to two things that you've got to do and both are sins, you choose the lesser sin. No connection on earth is greater than that between man and wife, which we read earlier on, he's saying to this lady. It is therefore right that you should stand by your husband, no matter what happens, no one can forbid you sharing everything with him, everything, not, not only your money. So the older saying that you've got to give the, like share the money, whatever it is, with your husband, you cannot hide it from your husband, even though your parent or parents told you not to. The necessity to keep this gift secret so that your mother should not vent her anger on your husband and cause even greater complications in the family is another source of anxiety for you. And yet it is right to bring about and maintain peace. So, wonderfully said. He's saying here that, um, yes, it will be necessary for you to keep it a secret from your mother because if you don't keep it a secret from your mother, then she will get angry with your husband and cause a whole disaster. The elder is saying to this woman, I understand that you, are, you have anxiety 
because you're going to have to keep it a secret from your mother and that you have to, in a way, be disobedient to your mother, but it is far more important to keep peace in your family. Give your husband all he wants and say nothing about it, but be fully conscious of your sins. The act of disobedience and the secretive action. In other words, he's, she's, he's saying to her, even though you had to sin, still it's us, it's a sin, and you need to repent of it. The fact that you are being secretive and the fact that you are being disobedient to your mother. It still needs repentance. It still needs confession. Humble yourself and pray for pardon. But do not lose hope that it will be granted. Don't fall into despair, the saint saying to this lady. Don't think you won't be forgiven. Don't be too harsh with yourself. You have to choose the lesser sin, avoid the greater sin, and nothing is greater than the bond between a man and a woman, and that is your top priority, is your marriage, not your mother. But don't tell her anything, and that way she doesn't know, and there's no problems over there. So, God is a reader of hearts and permits such situations so that we may not lose humility while striving for perfection. He's saying that God sometimes allows these situations to happen to give us humility. And he knows the reason why he allows things and the main, uh, and the main thing is the bond between the man and the woman is far greater than even that of our parents. We will come into the future talks where parents have been the cause of great disasters in their children's marriages, even to the point of doing magic to separate them. But we'll talk about that maybe in the next talk. The joint prayer, then he goes on and says to the, to the lady, the joint prayer of husband and wife is a great force. They may be one of the reasons why the enemy is trying to get both of you to break this excellent habit. So what happened was she must have written to him and said, you know, we're trying to do the prayer together, but we're getting all these temptations to occur. And he's saying nothing, it's, it's, it's such a powerful thing for a man and a woman who are one to pray together and it's for this reason that the devil is fighting. One more temptation which God permits so that you should learn to overcome it and one and come out of the testing stronger than before. God allows the temptation to occur. God allows the devil to tempt the couple so as they can see how hateful it is to the devil for someone to pray together and that says to the people well if he's so much against this joint prayer then it must be very very special and powerful i'm going to force myself i'm we, we should force ourselves to do it and even though sometimes it's like hell on earth and i know this because people have said it and i know from self-experience that you can try to be doing prayers with, with, with someone, with, you know, even in a monastery, whatever, and it's like the hell opens up and it's, it's such a torment. Everything from anger to thoughts to irritation to 
salivas to why did you move and why did you do that and why are you sniffling and why are you scratching yourself continually and stop that and I'm not going to pray with you. And you might think it's uh, funny, but it's not. That's actually how it goes. It becomes like you're a mental. Sometimes it can come like you, you actually think you're mental. And that's because the demons will bring every single type of temptation on that couple or on the monastery, whatever, to stop that prayer together. United prayer, uh, what's called the, this prayer together, not, is, is very powerful. And that's why I've noticed that hardly not many husbands and wives pray. Of course, there are in Greece a lot of pious um, couples which pray together. And there are even some here that pray together. They are giants. If they get through all those temptations and they can keep it up, they are giants, spiritual giants. One more temptation which God permits so that you should learn to overcome it and come out of the testing stronger than before. Remember that under all circumstances, humility is your surest weapon. On Manathos, when, it's, when, when there's going to be a vigil for a big feast day, A vigil could be like the, you know, could be like Christmas or the Nativity of Christ or some other big feast. Vigils over there can last 14 hours long. They start in the evening and they go right to the next morning. About some, yeah, 14 hours, 12, 14 hours. And um, just before the vigil, all of a sudden the monastery is being bombed. This happens even today. The monastery is being bombarded, or what the word is, with rocks. And monks begin to have fights and problems. And there's just rocks flying everywhere and things like that. That's the actual demonic forces that are causing chaos so as not to allow that vigil to go ahead. That's the same as the couples. When they go to pray together, there's a lot of temptations which occur. Fights beforehand, even when, even when going to church. Number eight. A spiritual child of Elder Epiphanius remembered the following. Now, Father Epiphanius, this is this book, which is a book produced in Greece, but they've translated into English by the, published by Orthodox Kipseli, Councils for Life, from the Life and Teachings of Father Epiphanius. Um, he um, passed away, I think, in the... Uh, I met him once, I went over. Not that I got much out of him because of my own depthlessness, but anyway, I did, I did meet him. And um, he was a very famous um, spiritual father there, very strict. And he, uh, there's some nice advice that he gives here in this book. And it says here, a spiritual child of the El of Elder Epiphanius remembered the following. Once when I was vi had visited father in his house and we were conversing, he received a brief phone call. He was a priest monk. His face was enlightened. 
He gave out a sigh of relief and hanging up the phone, he got up right away, went to his icon stand, made three deep prostrations and said, Glory to thee, O Lord, I thank thee, my God. Upon returning, he explained to me that a certain family problem, which had become very complicated due to the egotism of the in-laws, had now been solved. The older said about this problem, I had prayed a lot about this. Well, I'm, why I use this example is to show you how important it is some, for, for, to seek prayers of spiritual people and that sometimes there are situations which seem impossible. It seems like there is no other solution. And yet, um, the prayers of a spiritual father, the prayers of a, of a monastery, whatever, can solve that problem without you even understanding how that was solved. And, and uh, that is important to remember. We mustn't have the egotism and think, oh, I, will, I will work out everything on my own. Humility is important, and we have to admit that sometimes there's nothing humanly that we can do anymore except for pray, pray and ask God to ask others to pray for us. Number nine, a woman asked the elder to pray for her husband. A woman, a believing woman, left her house without her husband's permission in order to go with her mother to attend the 40-day memorial service of one of her relatives. Now, this is in Romania, and I don't know what year. This could have been in the 60s and the 50s. This is um, Returning home late... She stopped along the way to see Elder Cleopa. Now, Elder Cleopa is the famous, what they call the spiritual father of all Romania. He was a very, very famous elder. They used to call him the spiritual father of the whole of Romania. So she stopped by his monastery there and asked him to pray that there would be no problems with her husband when she got home. Now, some of you might ask, why does she need permission? Why this, why that? We're coming to that in later on talks about obedience to husbands and all these type of things. Let's just look at the, the dilemma. Now, whether this husband was aggressive and he was going to hit her, whether it's, I don't, know, I don't know. All I know is she was scared to go home because of her husband. Whether her husband was a believer, whether he was not, I don't know. That doesn't, that doesn't say. So it just says that she was scared. And she stopped by and said to the elder, please pray, uh, asking him to pray that there would be no problems with when her husband, when she gets home. Father Cleopa answered calmly, go in peace and without fear, for when you arrive home, you will find your husband on his knees in front of the icons praying, and he won't say anything. Indeed, when she arrived home, she found her husband exactly as Father Cleopa had predicted. Now, some of you might say, oh, but that's an elder, that's a saint. No, no, no. I have seen similar situations of people who were in some difficulty with no solution, as I said, or some problem, and then they asked for prayers, and it was a 360 turn, just a whole change. Humility is what's necessary. If a person has humility and they go to a priest or ask a monastery or whatever and ask for prayers, then God will grant blessings and solutions because of the humility. Number 10, Elder Macarius of Optino. Uh, this is another, another letter to someone else. And this is, um, he says, I need hardly tell you how wrong it is, this cold attitude of yours to, to your husband. So this woman wrote to Yeldon and said, 
I'm, you know, I've got this uh, coldness towards my husband. You describe it as a subtle, hidden revenge for his past indifference to you. And you are yourself quite clear about it being a sin. So she actually admitted to the saint, to the elder, that the reason why I'm cold towards him is because I remember in the past that he was indifferent towards me, didn't care about me. And I know that it's that, and I know it's a sin. But surely, having seen this and stated it, you must on no account accept the situation as inevitable, saying as you do that although you deeply regret it, you can do nothing about it. So this woman said, I can see it's a sin. I know why I'm doing it, but I can't help it. It's just meant to be or something like that. And the elders say, no, that's not how you should be. Or because it's strong in you, it doesn't mean that it can't go away and you've got to fight it. This cannot be true and it and is a very wrong attitude to take. I was dealing with this woman who had a husband who the husband had certain faults. He was uh, just an irresponsible type of person, didn't care about the children much, and just led his, led, led his life, which was selfish, selfish person. And the, and the woman was um, very upset about it and things like that. And she pointed it out to him and said, look, you know, you're selfish. And he said, that's the way I am. And this person was a church person. And he goes, that's the way I am. I can't, I can't be anything else. I can't deal, I can't stop it. And he didn't care. And, and, I, and I spoke to the person. I said, that's not correct. That's satanic. That's another satanic thing. That is demonic to actually have that attitude. So are you saying that God does not have the ability to change you? And he goes, uh, um, uh, uh, but yes, he can. So I said, then why are you saying that for? And he realised his mistake. And then he started to do some struggle and lo and behold, um, he did see how bad it was in him. Because, you know, when you don't struggle against something, you don't really think, you go, oh, I've got that problem. But when you start to struggle, then you see how ferocious it is, how powerful it is. And this gives humility and goes, it's really strong in me. It's really, really strong in me. Help me, which before he never said that. He said to his wife, forgive me. He never said that before because he made an attempt to, go, to struggle with that passion. That's how powerful, how soul-saving it is when someone starts to fight their passions. That's spiritual life. A lot of people go, that's the way I am. That's the way I am. I've got another lady who, was, who was, um, wasn't married, but she would always say, that's me. I don't care. I'm cold. I don't care about people. I don't feel this. But no repentance. When she did it to anyone, she never asked forgiveness. It, and, and, and I said to her, if you don't fight that passion, it will take you over to the point that you may not be able to come out of it. Unfortunately, this person kept on going, kept on going, kept on going, kept on going. And to the time that I knew her, for many years, completely, as we say in Greek, anesthety, which means completely, oh, what's, that, what's, what's it in English? Insensitive. Insensitive 100%. Didn't care and said, that's the way I am. That's the way I am. And I said to her, I'm sorry to say I've got some bad news for you. You cease to be an orthodox Christian and I have to stop commemorating you because you have denied you have, not, you have shown that you are not struggling for salvation. 
If she was struggling and falling, that's okay. But when a per- that's like a person who's living with someone and then they're fornicating away, having sex there, whatever they're doing, and you say to them, that's a sin. They go, well, that's the way I want to be. That the fathers say, you cease commemorating them because they are willfully sinning without any repentance, nothing. If they're struggling and falling, struggling, falling, like the priest that was smoking or the priest that was drinking, they're struggling, I want to stop, I want to stop, I fall. I stop, stop, I fall. And then they repent. And then they're getting more humility. And they're praying to God, please forgive me, please help me, please get me free of this passion. That's okay. That can make a person holy. But when a person says point blank, I'm not going to do anything about it, then that person has become demonic. And we're going to see soon that even Elder, Porf- Elder Paisio said, it's very hard to pray for those people. I, as I told us straight out, I cease to commemorate you. And you know, didn't care. She didn't say, oh, please, that's not, what, what, what should I do to, didn't care. So my, I wasn't, not, not that I'm a prophet, but I was correct. Spiritual law, when you keep on doing, doing, doing the, 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 the passion, you don't care, you keep on falling, you're not struggling, then after a while you become blind and you don't care anymore. And at that time you cease to be an orthodox Christian and basically salvation is very doubtful. Now, some of you might think that's harsh, but it's not. St. John in his epistle says, I, I can't remember the exact word, I should have actually wrote it down, he said, um, there are people who sin unto death, and I say to you, do not pray for them. And what that interpretation means, that they sin unto death means that they're doing sins and are unrepentant and don't care, they love it, they're going to keep on doing it, they don't care at all, and they're going to continue doing it, and that's it. And he's saying, John, the disciple of love, said, you don't pray for them. Now, some of you might say, oh, but I remember reading some saints that prayed for unrepentant people and they, and they repented. Yes, Elder Paisios did go through that. He actually said that those people, that those type of people like St. Paisios the Great, some of these great desert dwellers, had a special grace that they could actually pray, even for the unrepentant, even those in hell, Hades, to get them out. Very exceptional. But, but even some saints that are holy don't have that ability to be able to change an unrepentant person or even to get someone out of Hades. It's very serious. We all have passions as long as we're struggling. When we struggle against them, struggle, fall, struggle, fall, struggle, fall. That fall and struggle and fall again, that gives birth to humility. Humility gives birth, or what we say, pulls down the grace of God into the soul of the person. If it, that would be far superior, even if someone keeps all the fasts, even if someone does all these great prayers, but they've got vainglory like the Pharisee in the what Christ's parable, the parable of the, who went and said, oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like this and I fast twice a week and I give my money to the poor who was a Pharisee and God said he, he, was, he wasn't justified but then in comes the publican who was full of passions and full of sins and still obviously falling and he just he said stood there with his head down and beaten his chest and says God be merciful to me a sinner and he left the temple justified while the other one who did everything perfectly 
was not justified. So, what does that mean? It means that it doesn't matter what passions we have, it doesn't matter how many sins we've fallen into, we just keep on going and asking God continually for mercy. So when an elder, when a disciple went to an elder and said, Elder, I struggle and I fall. And the elder said, well, get up. But, he goes, but then I fall again. He goes, get up. But then I fall again. He says, then you get up again. But, but how long? He goes, until death comes and finds you getting up, then you'll be saved. So I went off track a bit there, but this cannot be true in a very wrong attitude take. Remember what marriage is, a sacrament. Remember that the first obligation of a man and a wife is to love each other and be completely loyal to each other under all circumstances to the end of their days. Paradise on earth. A husband and wife to have to be struggling to love each other and to be loyal to each other to the end of their days. Is it against this man to whom, in God's sight, you owe the wholeness of your love and loyalty? Is it against him that you have had for many years and still have an evil feeling of cruel revenge? Pray that you may be given the strength to forgive all those who have trespassed against you and that your own trespasses may be forgiven you. So we're demanded from God himself where he said, the Our Father, and forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us, then that should be applied even more in the family situation with the husband and wife. How is God going to forgive the husband if he doesn't forgive his wife? And how is the wife going to be forgiven by God, her own sins, if she doesn't forgive the sins of her husband? So from all of the above ten examples, there is one common theme. What is it? The guidance and prayer of a spiritual father. And the prayers and help from monasteries and elders, etc. That's the common theme. Every single one of those examples has to do with getting help from elders or from a spiritual father. That's, it's, it's important to have that help. How can a married people come together with no help? How, how do they go together towards marriage without any aid? In, so... Elder Paisios said the following, in the past, in order to do something, a worldly person would think about it. He would think, a worldly person would think, think about it and say, okay, what should I do? If he were a spiritual person, he would think and pray about it. In our times, even supposed spiritual people not only don't pray, they don't even think so the elder in his encounters with so many people noticed that people would come to him and about situations. Not only were they not thinking about the situation like even a worldly person would do, there are worldly people that are quite wise. They think about a situation. Okay, what should I do there? They think about it and things like that. And that's half of it. And then a spiritual person is supposed to pray about it as well. In fact... This frequently involves serious matters. In all circumstances, before we act, we should say, have I thought about this? Have I prayed about this? I remember once a few years ago there was a situation where um, uh, there was a couple and they were having an argument. The argument was whether to go away for a holiday. The husband wanted to go away somewhere, I don't know where to, whoop, whoop, somewhere. Um, Where was it? Maybe... 
Queensland, somewhere, I'm not sure. And the woman said, oh, we, we, we shouldn't do that. Husband says, why is that? Because we've got a big loan. What are we going to do? Going to go up there and spend $5,000. What for? Let's, let's save and put ready for the loan. And the husband, really, that, like, like, he's, um, like he's 13 years old, and he's just saying, oh, well, I want to go to Surface Paradise and swim. Um, the wife said, but there's beaches in Sydney. There's the beaches here in Sydney. We can go swim there. No, but I want to catch the plane and pay $600 and I want to go and stay at a resort where you pay $600 a night. Now, as they say in Greek, that person had no nyunyu, no mialo, no brain in his head, like a, like a child. Now, the problem is there, did he think about it? No, his wife at least thought about it. She went to the level of thinking about it. But then we come to the next level, praying about it. This person didn't even pray about it. Is it your will? Go to the icons and say, is it your will for us to go to, for a holiday? Is it meant for us to go on a holiday? Is it meant for us to go to a hotel where there's bacteria everywhere, etc., etc., that they've got, that they say about it now? We might get food poisoning up there. We might get um, from, um, bed lice and come back with thousands of spots on our um, back from the um, bed lice and bring it back to the house. And then the lice get, what are they called? Fleas. And the fleas go into all the mat- mattresses in the house. You know, ask, pray. No. So the first level is to think about it. Is it a logical thing to do? The second level is to pray about it. When someone acts, I'm amazed sometimes when I meet worldly people in my in my you know, journeys around here, whatever, and you meet some people and they speak and, and you speak to them and they talk about their lives or whatever, and you, I'm, I'm surprised that some of them, they're not religious, they're not um, uh, orthodox, they're not even, some of them aren't even Catholic, they basically don't even believe in anything. And yet, at least on the level that when they say, go, okay, well, we're not going to go on a holiday this year because we're going to put the money to that and we're going to pay more for that, whatever. All these things, they're thinking things out. They don't say they're going to pray about it because they don't believe. Even though some, some even, even if they don't, they might even actually say, oh, well, God will help us. Even they might slip that out now and then, which we'll see. But Orthodox Christians sometimes don't even think. So thinking is the first thing. We've got a mind. We use our mind. And then we also got the spiritual where we pray. Uh, now let's see what he says. In all circumstances, before we act, we should say, have I thought about this? Have I prayed about this? When someone acts without thinking and without praying, he acts satanically, Elder Paisio says. A person, an Orthodox Christian, who does not do that, think it out intellectually and pray about it, acts satanically. When, and you often see many Christians, Elder Paisio says, acting in a way that doesn't allow God to intervene. What does that mean? He's saying it doesn't allow God to get involved, to get, to, to, to act in their decision, in their life, because they never asked him. They imagine that they can manage everything by themselves. 
Whereas, even an unbeliever may say an occasional, God will provide. The believer, in inverted commas, says, or the paisios, won't. Why is he saying, why is he speaking so harshly about Orthodox Christians? Well, he met thousands of them because they used to go to him on the, on the Holy Mountain. Thousands. I'm talking about a lot of people went to visit him. I mean, even I visited him around, maybe I think I visited him around six, seven times in my years that I went there. And imagine others. And he met a lot of people. I remember I went to him once and I said to him, I'm thinking of doing that. And he um, didn't like that. And, and he said, gave me some advice along the lines of, you know, the spirituality and, and, and praying and things like that. So that is very important and I learnt a lot from that. So, whereas an unbeliever may say an occasional God will provide, the believer won't. Now, of course, there are some believers that do, but I think what the elder's trying to say is the majority of Orthodox Christians today can't even say that. Now, we come to... The reason why I'm saying that is because... Why am I bringing this up about this prayer? Because people enter the biggest thing in their life, which is marriage without thinking about it, whether this person's correct for them, at least thinking on an intellectual... Nothing wrong with that. Looking at that person, say, OK, is this person for me? You're allowed to do that. But at the same time, do some prayer and say the same thing. Well, uh, is this person for me? So we can use our mind and say, oh, I like that person. I think that person would be good for me. Or maybe they've got that problem there. And then that's the intellect. And then... We go to the spiritual, but God knows best. God, you help and help me. If this is the person for me, let it happen and help me in my marriage. So what he's trying to say here is that people don't even ask for God's help. And if they don't ask for God's help, how is God going to act in that marriage or in any situation? But we're talking about marriage now. How is God going to act in that, in that situation? Because it's, it's, it, when a person does not say... Uh, where is it here? If a person doesn't say, um, God will provide or God help me and God guide me, if he doesn't say that, it's as if the person is saying to God, I don't want you involved in my life. I don't want you involved in my marriage. I don't want you involved with my husband or my wife and my children. They cut him off, and as a result of that, we can see today, we don't, I don't think I have to go through it. Now, one of the, so prayer is important, but also what's important, Elder Basio says, is that couples and families have the same spiritual father. So he goes on and says, a necessary condition for forming a strong family is for the future couple to find a good spiritual father. They should agree from the beginning so that they don't have problems later on. So in other words, do you want to have a spiritual father? You say to the person you want to marry, yes. Or no, I don't want one. Then you've got to think to yourself, well, am I going to go ahead with this person? I'm a spiritual person. I want a spiritual father in my life. My wife doesn't want it. Or my husband doesn't want to, have be, to be involved. So what's going to happen then? It's going to be a bit of chaos there, unless there's some special providence, as we saw in the past. The old, the old uh, Porphyrus, where he told her, well, 
he told the man you still get married, which he didn't. Uh, there might be some exceptions there. But in general, why would you want to marry someone who doesn't want to have a spiritual father? If you've got a spiritual father, then you want a spiritual father. You want guidance. So, clear that up beforehand. You see, the spiritual father helps a lot. The spiritual father will play the role of judge or referee in order to prevent quarrels in the family. When the married couple finds itself in total disagreement, it will go to the spiritual father who will show God's will to them, placing its faith in God. Otherwise, the family falls apart. The wife's parents interfere, the husband's parents interfere, and all of them together try to impose their own opinion and thus destroy the family. If, on the other hand, the couple agrees to have a spiritual guide, then such complicated situations will not arise. In order for the married couple to move forward, it must have a common spiritual father, for he is similar to a carpenter who wishes to put together two boards. So, Elder Paisius compares a married couple to two boards. And just like the, then he says here, after sawing and shaving the boards, he makes them even and then joins them together. In general, it would be better for all family members to have one spiritual father, since he, knowing the family problems well, will be able to give each one instruction accordingly. So, he, he'll explain that later on, what he means by this sawing and things like that. So, you know, the, the man has certain problems, the woman has certain problems, they can't join together a lot of times. So what the spiritual father does is he cuts a bit here and shaves a bit here somehow spiritually and then he brings the couple together. Many couples which were suited for each other, who married because they were in love, separated afterwards because they were not helped by a good spiritual father. So the couple was good, they were suited for each other, they, they, they had a, a good um, hope of having a good um, marriage, but they never had a spiritual father to help them. So when times come, the woman goes to read the Clio magazine, the man uh, reads something in a, I don't know, Playboy magazine, gets some advice there, or from his mates at work, which, know, which don't even know what day it is, and everyone's getting advice from the TV, from the internet, from here, from there, and they don't even go to a spiritual father who can tell them the proper things and not satanic things, which are today a lot of times there. Now, some of you might say, oh, there's some good things. There's some good things. Okay, well, here we are. This water here is good, isn't it? Beautiful. Ivy, Lutraki water. It's Greek water. So, nice, fresh. They say it's from um, a, um, some type of um, water from the ground. Could be just from a tap, who knows? But anyway. So there's the water, nice in there. But in there is also mixed a couple of drops of poison, which is clear. So it's got some good things, but there's also some poison. That's the same as these things that you see on television or the internet. They've got a few little good things. Wives should learn to be... Um, husbands and wives should learn to be a bit more tolerant. That, that's a good thing. That's, we, we say that too. And then they go on to other things. Filthy things, other demonic things. So mixed with some good things is demonic things. That's not um, the advice you want. 
So many couples were suited for each other who married because they were in love, separated after because they were not helped with a, by a good spiritual father. Sometimes, however, couples which did not suit one another but had the same spiritual father did just fine. That's wonderful too. So he said some couples got together that weren't really very good together. But with a spiritual father, they were able to actually make a good marriage because he was able to cut a bit here, sand there, and make them join together nicely. Find a good spiritual father who will attend to you lovingly and always follow his advice. It is hard to obtain help from afar. The physician should always be near. In other words, he's trying to say, some people say, I'm going to get my guidance from a priest that lives in America, for example, or in Greece. And he's saying, no, have someone near you. Yes, you can ask for prayers, he said. Um, only prayer can be requested from afar. Ask for prayers, but guidance really should be to find someone who cares about your soul, your marriage, and is close so that you have them on hand. It's very difficult when you're kind of trying to get guidance from someone who's on the other side of the world. Now, to those who ask for prayers at church, Elder Cleopa would say, so people, Elder Clipper would say about those who would ask prayers, like I just said. Um, he wasn't guiding them, one can say, but he was, that people you'd say to write to him and say, can you please pray? He says, I've done the big services here, you know, I've done the liturgies or the paraclises or whatever, I've done the big services here, but if the person doesn't do anything at home, that which is said in the Holy Scriptures is fulfilled. When one prays and the other does not, the one builds and the other tears down. He was, he, this is where people say, oh, if I ask prayers from an elder or a holy person or a priest or a spiritual father, and that's enough. No, it's not enough because he's saying here the person has to also make some effort too. And the elder says here, when one prays and the other doesn't, the one builds and the other tears down. This is what I give you. After morning prayers, read the Annunciation Akathus, in other words, the Akathus to the Most Holy Theotokos, with an oil lamp burning in front of an icon you will see that the mother of God is a speedy helper. So make an effort. Now, I've said to you in the past, and some of you obviously thought I was a really bad person. That's okay. So people come to me and they say, oh, you know, can you please commemorate us? Can you please do a prayer for uh, my child or something? My child's gone a bit off and he's, a, you know, this and that. And I say, have you prayed? They said, no. I said, well, I'm not praying either. You pray first, come back and tell me. Once you've done, go, what should I do? Do a couple of akathis, do a couple of canons, do a few prostrations, you know, bend your back a bit, get, get some work done there, and then when you've done something, then come back. And you know, when a person asks, and Elder Paisa said this, when a person asks a priest to pray, but they've made no effort, he actually says himself, he said, and, I've, and I feel that, but I mean, I'm not an elder, but still the same thing, priesthood, and I, I don't feel it person says oh can you please pray for my family and it's like sorry I just don't it doesn't kind of hit me but when a person's made some effort themselves and they said can you please pray for my family bum straight into the heart and Elder Paisio said that beautifully he goes when a person asks with faith it says you remember he actually says things like um, visitors come to him and say Elder do a couple of prayer ropes for me, like that. Do a couple of prayer ropes, he says. It's like, uh, he says, um, it, the elder says, I don't feel nothing, I don't even remember those people. But when a person says from their heart, elder, can you please pray for me? He goes, 
that person enters the heart of the person you're asking, whether it's an elder or whether it's a priest that holds. The same with dead. When you say, people come and say, oh, um, can you pray for my mother? She passed away. It ricochets off. Most of the time I even forget. Does he think that's rude? I don't know, I just forget. I don't, it just doesn't come to me. Um, if they give money, then of course that's different because then you've got to say, okay, they're giving money, they made a bit of an effort, I'll write them down. But sometimes they just say, oh, can you pray for my father, George? And I go, okay. And then I don't know if I forget. Anyway, and another person comes up, they don't give any money, they just say, can you please pray for my father? He passed away. Can you pray for his soul in the heart? You go to the service, all of a sudden the, you have the thought um, of the person and commemorate. Right? It does not, it's not something which is just for elders. Priests, it's, it's very similar because priests are commemorating continually. And um, that's why I do it. So who thinks I'm a cruel person for saying to the person, I'm not going to pray? Am I a cruel person? Hmm? What do you think, Ross? No? But you know, the ones when, when I have said that, and they've actually prayed, and then later on they learn about prayer they learned there was a woman who was having trouble with her children and she was saying to me i'm losing my children i'm losing my children um you know please, please pray for for me and i said i just can't can't do it can't feel but, but i'm losing my children i can't feel what you're saying have you done anything she goes no i said well you do something so she went and she started to do some akathis or some prayers there and she comes back and she says to me, can you please pray for my children? I go, okay. Felt something there. So you commemorate. And she says, thank you for your prayers. The children are better. I said, no. No, 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 no. It, if you never prayed f first, then my commemorations probably wouldn't have helped at all. It's really important for the person to make an effort. And so even though it's cruel... Those people learn to pray. Is there a break now? How about two minutes, quickly? Someone went to Elder Paisios and said, Yeranda, St. James in his epistle says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What is meant by this? And Elder Paisios answered, that it is also necessary for someone seeking the prayer of a righteous man to want to be helped, to be saved, to make an effort to. So, St. James in his epistle says there that when someone asks the prayers of a righteous person, it avails much, it is effective, it can help. And Elder Paisio says yes, but the person who's asking has to, want, uh, man, um, has to want to be saved and he has to make an effort as well, which is what I was saying earlier on. In other words, someone who wants to benefit from the prayer of a righteous man must have a good disposition. Prayer from the heart is heard. Yes, God does hear the prayer of a person who's praying from their heart, say for a priest or a, um, uh, an elder or whatever. But the recipient must also be receptive. In other words, the person who asks must be receptive. Now, we all know what reception means for the phones. You know, you've got the phones, 
you go, oh, this phone's really good, it's got good reception. This phone's no good because it always cuts out the call. It's not receptive. Uh, it doesn't pick up the signals. That's the same as for us. We have to be able to be pick up the, to be receptive to God's grace. And this comes when a person wants to be saved and when a person is making an effort. In other words, someone who wants to benefit from the prayer of a righteous man must have a good disposition, a good heart, a heart that wants the good, even though it might be in a mess, but deep down his heart is good. Prayer from the heart is heard, but the recipient must also be receptive. Otherwise, the person who is praying must have the sanctity of St. Paisus the Great to be able to bring the other person out of hell. So first pray for those who wish to be saved. What I said before, someone, he doesn't just mean someone who's in hell, meaning in the next life. A person can be in hell here, an unrepentant person, a person who's fighting God's grace, a person who doesn't want to repent, a person that doesn't want to humble themselves, a person that doesn't want to do the commandments of God. Those people can be living in hell from here. And he said that those people need some great, great saint to be able to bring them out. In general, even some of the other saints, as I said, couldn't, couldn't do that. St. Paisius the Great, I think if I remember right from his, from his life, he actually prayed to God and asked to give him the special gift to be able to pray for the unrepentant. But in general, we are not even required to pray for them a lot of times because that's something which is far greater and as I said St John said and I say to you not to pray for them and then Elder Paisio says so, so first pray for those who wish to be saved when I was ordained a priest and I asked the bishop what advice do you give me as a priest and he said these words to me which unfortunately I didn't take heed properly and I've hit my head a lot of times. He said, help those who want to be saved. But what did I do wrong? I tried to help those who didn't want to be saved. And what happened was that, as it says, when you throw the holies to the swine and to the dogs, uh, it says they will tread on the holies and rip you apart. That's why even Saint Paul says... A heretical person, after the first and second admonition, in other words, you know, tell them once, tell them twice. But after that, leave them. That's what St. Paul says. He didn't say to chase after them. Leave them. Did we see Christ trying by force or running after the unrepentant? No. He went to those who were repentant, those who were interested. Only if the unrepentant approached him and asked some questions, then he would, he would say some things, not necessarily for their sake, because they were so um, horrible, but for the sake of those around. But yet the devil tricks us, and I'm one of those victims, where we're running after these people who just don't want to repent, don't want to be saved. So what's the point? When I ask God in prayer to help in various cases, I say, uh, my God, may, you help, may your help be obvious so that the people may benefit spiritually too. If it cannot be visible, don't help us. 
Elder Paisus is saying here that when people come and ask him for prayers, he wants that help. If that person does get help from God, he wants that help to be obvious to the person so that that can help him to, if they're not, say, they're not really churchgoers, they're not, they don't know. Not that they're rejecting on purpose, they just don't know. So, when I said before that some people ask for prayers but they, they don't... Um, they might not be in, in the church or spiritual. You still help them because a lot of times those people have never been touched by God's grace. They don't know much. So you still pray for them. And then, as Elder Paisio says, you want that, that if that prayer, if, if the commemorations help that person, for that to be obvious. So they can actually then say, oh, look how God helped and help them come to the church. What I'm talking about mostly is people that have been in the church for 10 years, 15 years, and don't even know how to pray, and things like that. So, or people that, for example, if a person's living in sin, and they're not even doing a spiritual life at all, and they come and they ask for help, I'll still help them. Because a lot of times they... And they don't even know that what they're doing is wrong. And then I'm trying to slowly come around to help those people, like I did with that relative on the phone the other day, come around and slowly bring her or bring them to God instead of being strict. Orthodox priests should be more strict with those who have been in the church for years and no more and have no excuse rather than those who don't know much. And that's why I've noticed that when commemorating a person who's not even got much to do with the church, you can actually feel that compared to an Orthodox Christian who's been in the church for years and doesn't struggle. Because the other person, they're not rejecting, even though they're doing big sins, they're not rejecting grace consciously. They're not actually, because they don't even know what they're doing. So they are still able to be touched by God's grace even if they're doing big sins. But an Orthodox Christian who knows what the commandments are and is doing sins on purpose and remains unrepentant, that person is actually consciously closing the doors to God's grace and that's where it becomes blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So when I ask God to, to in prayer to help in various cases, I say... My God, may your help be obvious so that people may benefit spiritually too. If it cannot be visible, don't help us. Many people are not at all aware what storms God has saved us from, nor do they think of it so as to praise God. That is why we should ask Christ, the Mother of God, the saints, to help people, but to make their help perceptible. In other words, noticeable, obvious, so that people can benefit spiritually from it. So people can say, I asked that priest for commemoration or I went and done, I went to the icon of the mother of God and I had a problem and that problem was solved. And that person to say, thanks God, and, and to have a, like a, um, uh, uh, their heart begins to open up towards the, 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 uh, the, the, um, the church. Elder Cleopas said, do you know who the mother of God is and how much honour and how much power and how much mercy she has. She's our mother because she has mercy for the poor, the widows, and all Christians. She prays continually to the Saviour, Christ for us all. That's Elder Cleopa. Why I'm saying these is because 
as married people or single but married people should have should have the mo the mother of god as a, a to form a very close relationship with the mother of god if you want to take her as your protectress says elder cleopa in the morning read the akathis with a burning oil lamp and in the evening the paraklesis that's the maleben to the mother of god you will have help during your life at the moment of death and on the day of judgment those who pray to the mother of god daily will be helped by her at the end do you know at, well, during life but and at the end of their life do you know what the mother of god can do before the throne of the most holy trinity it was if it wasn't for her i believe that the world would have been lost long ago i've mentioned this before in other talks that the mother of god continually prays to her son and god not to uh, bring the second the last judgment to give people chance to repent and even for those that have already died for the church to pray for them keep on praying to help them to come out of hades elder thavel said the following it is of great significance is serbian saying it is of great significance if there is a person who truly prays in a family prayer attracts god's grace and all the members of the family feel it even those whose hearts have grown cold pray always elder thavel's here is saying that even if one person there's one person in that family which is which is praying then then the other members even if they're not going to church much can actually uh, be um, moved of course unless the persons have have um, willfully blaspheming and saying blaspheming the Holy Spirit by saying I don't want any grace but in general as I said there are people who are unaware of God and the church properly and they've got good dispositions and prayer can help when uh, Saint Tikkun of the Dons wrote, when either the husband is of good character or the wife is of bad character, or the wife is of good character and the husband is of bad character, then perpetual suffering and a cross will result for the party of good character. Then in that case, one must apply patience and endure and overcome whatever evil may come, may, may occur with patience. So the, older, so the saint here is saying, the Russian saint, that when a person that you're living with is of not a Christian character, like really bad character, then the other person has to carry across. It's very difficult. Now, some of us can say, well, why? In the modern day, today, we just divorce. Why? Why endure with someone who's horrible? Why endure? And he says here that you must apply patience and endure and overcome whatever evil. When we read spiritual books, when we read saints, what do we notice about them? all the trials that they went through the persecutions that they went through the martyrdom that they went through whether they, all the ascetics the fast that they went through demonic temptations they went through some of them like saint seraphim was um when the thieves came to his to his uh, hut in the forest they beat him they broke his back that's why he would walk uh, later on all these things happened to the saints and we say oh isn't that great isn't that great but then we have our own trials in the marriage where we are given the opportunity for the for people that are married that is or monastic anyway talk about marriage that people are given the opportunity to become holy through the suffering so we read these books and we don't even apply and go oh look at that they went through all these trials and sufferings and they became holy and then they go oh i can't stand my husband he's really of bad character and i wish i could leave him and things like that not thinking and say well that's your cross or, the, or having a, the bad wife. Now, 
Elder Paisios says something which I found very enlightening. I'm going to end with this. He, he says that um, someone asked him the question, why does God not bring together couples who would lead a truly spiritual life? Like, in other words, why does he bring couples together? They've got all these differences and problems and there's all these problems that occur. And then Elder Paisios replies, it would be better, it would, it's a bit sarcastically, he says, it would be even better if the devil did not exist. Now, that's got special meaning. A lot of people would say, why does God allow the devil to tempt Christians? And St. Anthony replies, if it wasn't for the devil, no one would be saved. God allows the devil to torment us because through that, by, by, by us fighting him and struggling, we attain salvation. So that is with God's permission. The devil can do nothing to us unless God permits him to do something to us. And if God permits him to do something to us, it's because that's good for our soul. And that's why he's saying, well, what? So we should actually get rid of the devil. The elder Paisus is saying, how are we then going to be saved? So he's trying to say there that couples with these problems is for salvation as well. Let's have a look. Uh, then spiritual life would be easy. So if we had no problems in the marriage, if with the devil didn't exist, then everything would be easy. But that's not what God wants. But the devil does exist. God's love determines absolutely everything, even allowing, in other words, what he's trying to say, even allowing him to, 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 um, to bother us. In order to save a bad husband, God gives him a good wife and vice versa. Now everything is changeable and nothing is certain. Be patient and everything will pass. So that's a that so say so when you've got a difficult husband or a difficult wife that's a, a lot of times God allows that to happen for the salvation of yourself and the other person who has got the problems and remember what he's trying to say here that um, nothing is certain everything's change, changeable that people aren't robots so when you're living with someone when you're dealing with people it's unpredictable you don't even know what can set them off what passion they've got you know, what temptation they're going to have. And this uncertainty is like you're in warfare continually. It can be like, and that's where you've got to pray. You're going to say, OK, maybe now there might be a fight tonight. I have to pray before she comes home or before he comes home. Do a prayer and say, God, give us peace tonight, whatever. These are like helping people to become um, spiritual giants. Elder Pelusa said the following regarding married couples who complained about each other. Many married couples complain about each other because they are unable amid great family difficulties to recognise God's plan for them. That's what we're saying. People have lost the ability to understand where God is trying to help them in their life or marriage. One husband, for example, complains that his wife is... Um, like moody, unpredictable, impulsive, things like that. Another wife complains that her husband is quick to anger. When this was brought to the attention of the elder, he smilingly said, well, children, God knows better than we know to do his job. God knows exactly what's necessary for everyone. 
if, for example, a husband is prickly, means like a bit um, ouchy, like he's just a, a difficult person, then God provides him with a mild-mannered wife and vice versa. The Lord sees everything. He also sees that two childish characters will not be suitable for married life because they will fall apart. So in other words, if, if people that are immature, two immature people get married, at least one of them to have some maturity, but they're both immature, that will be a disaster. So God knows exactly what goes with what person. This type of person goes with this type of person. Those people together can have a productive life and come to salvation. Elder Paisius related the following story. One day a man came to his um, house there, this is Kaliva, and told him that he was very worried because he was not of the same mind with his wife. He was different. They had just different views of everything. I saw, however, that there was nothing serious between them. He just had a few rough edges and his wife had a few other rough edges and they shouldn't deal with and they couldn't deal with one another. They needed a little sanding, like you said before. That's what the old that's what the priest does, the spiritual father. Helps to shape each person to help them come together. One has a knot and the other has a knot, that's like that's wood. And if you try to join the planks, there is an empty space. So if you've got the two planks but one's got a little lump there, they're not going to join. Got to cut, sand, and this helps those couples to become uh, bonded together. If, however, you sand one a little here and the other a little there using the same tool, meaning the spiritual father, they join perfectly. Some men tell me, I don't see eye to eye with my wife. We have opposite personalities. That's a common thing. When you go to file for divorce, what's the reason? Well, we have different personalities. We don't get on. She has one temperament, I have another. How can God do strange things, people would say. Couldn't he have arranged a few things so that the couples matched and they were able to live more spiritually? So the people are saying to him, couldn't God have done at least to bring two people together that are similar? That's why people go to these matchmaking things online. How desperate. So they've got to go there and, to, as I said, put in all their information, their likes, dislikes, and then some computer puts it all together. Not God, no, no. The computer knows more than God of who's meant for us. And you might say, oh, I know some couples that met online and they're really successful. Oh, and I know many couples that met online and they're disasters. Doesn't mean that everything, I mean, some people in ignorance don't even know about praying to God. They're not in the church, they don't know. Maybe God's providence, they might meet. But the point is that if you know, why would you go there? So, these people are complaining about God and saying, can't he do the right thing? Our blasphemous and saying, can't he make people come together that are similar? And Elder Paisio says, I tell them, don't you understand that the harmony of God is hidden within a diversity of personalities? Now, when I read that, I go, that's, that's fantastic. That is really powerful. 
that harmony in a couple comes when there is a diversity of people, when people's personalities are different. Different temperaments, he says, actually create harmony. Alas, if you had the same personalities, think what would happen if, for example, you both got angry easily, so both people, this person's an angry person, this person's an angry person, right? Same personality. That would be a disaster. Um, you would destroy... So let's, think, let's say that again. Think what would happen if, for example, you both got angry easily. You would destroy your house. Or consider if both of you had mild temperaments. You would sleep standing up. So in other words, if both are quite dead, you know, some people just don't have much of a get up and go. So you've got one dead person married to another dead person. So that maybe they went online and they said, what's your characteristic? I'm dead. <laughs> and I'd like to meet someone else who's dead so they can be the same as me. Because if someone's more zealous, someone's a bit more got get up and go, I don't like that, so I want them to be the same as me, dead and dead. So what happens there, he says, that both of them will be, will be fall asleep. They won't do anything in life. If you were both stingy, you would get along, yes, but you would both end up in hell. Why? Because you're not going to give any money to the poor. Likewise, if both of you were open-handed, like you love giving money to the poor, you would, you would even be able, you, you, would you be able to keep your house? No. You would disperse everything and your children would be turned out to the streets. And there are people like that. They've got similar things. One loves giving money, the other one loves giving money. And they just throw their money continually, out, 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 until they've got nothing left. But that's why it's good to have one person that's a bit tight, one person that's a little bit more loose, and together one helps the other. So this one's too loose, the stingy one will bring them over here. Now this one's too stingy, then the one that's a bit more loose will bring that person. And that difference in personalities help each person. The stingy person helps to become a bit more open, to give away money, and the person who's, who likes to give away money all the time would be brought in and say, hey, you know, we've got a family, come back a bit there. So, the same with the anger, an angry person and a person that's meek. So the angry person says, I want to tell that person off like, uh, what they did. And the other person says, no, no, come on, calm down, calm down, calm down, the thing. So that's the same. Now, this person who's a bit meek might be too weak and allow people to interfere in the marriage and that person's a bit too weak to say anything. So the other person's a bit angry and goes, no, you can't allow that to happen because they're going to take over our house and tell us how to bring up our children or whatever. So each pulls each other so they can make a good combination. And yet people say, no, we have to have the same characters to survive. If a sport brat marries a sport brat, between themselves they get along fine because they're both spoiled, but one day someone is going to kill them. For this reason God arranges it so that a good person marries a sport brat, that the latter may be helped. It may be that he or she has a good disposition but was never instructed correctly when young. So some people have got a good heart 
But when they were brought up, they just weren't brought up in the right way. They were brought up sport, let's just say. And they marry someone who's not that character, but then that person helps them to become more responsible. And, but if they're both irresponsible, they're not going to care. I think what he means by someone's going to kill them, like, they don't care, irresponsible. Well, windows open, uh, who cares? I'm too lazy to close them. So they just wait and someone comes in and kills them. See, things like that. Just be, be some, They're both um, sport, lazy, and things like that. So he said here... It may be that he or she has a good disposition but was never instructed correctly when young. Little differences in the characters or personalities of spouses actually help couples to create a harmonious family. For the one completes the other. In a car, it is necessary to use the gas pedal to go forward but also the brake pedal to stop. If the car only had brakes, it wouldn't go anywhere. And if it only had gears, it wouldn't be able to stop. So you need both. So it's the same as in a married couple. Different personalities complement each other and help. See, I'm more of a fiery person. That's me. That's the way. My father was like that. So um, sometimes I'm a little bit abrupt. Sorry, I should say. Sometimes I'm very abrupt and, and can become quite angry, etc. But another brother at the monastery there can be more uh, meek, more uh, softer and would say, oh, do you think that's a good idea, you know, maybe not to do that? See, so that's good. So that even happens in, in, in monastic life. While the opposite can be where a person can be um, a bit dead, not, not very good in... Um, not, um, uh, very um, assertive, and by not being assertive, that could, that person could put themselves in danger. Like, sad to say, but there are, some, for example, some people. Let's just let's choose a woman for this point. A woman could be not assertive, and they there's a person that seems to be hovering around their children, who seems to be not there for good reasons. Maybe they're a pedophile or something. And this woman, which I've, I've had this experience, and he said, so the person, um, you got to, uh, this person I think is not, is dangerous. Too much interest in the children and too much touching. There's something not right and, and, and things like that. And you say, to, but I don't know how to say it. So from their deadness, they, they, they don't even think that their children are in danger. But then you've got the spouse, for example, who's a bit more fiery, and says, no, I don't want this person here. So, and the opposite, it might be the man that's dead and the woman's more fiery. See? But if they're both dead, inactive, then the children can be victims. And that's happened a lot of times. And no one speaks up. Either of them don't speak up sometimes. And they know it's happening. Um, anyway, and so... Do you know what I said to one couple... He's, this is all the way he's saying. Because you are similar, you don't match. Now, that, that even that's... Per, they, are, they, they are both sensitive. So, because they are both sensitive, he says, you're not a good match. If something happens at home, both of them lose it and start up. The one says, oh, what, what we suffer, what we suffer. The other, oh, what we suffer, what we suffer, because they've both got the same character. 
if they're opposite character, we'll say, okay, calm down, calm down, calm down. But no, they're both the same. So both are going delirious, mad, and therefore the elder said, you don't, not good for a marriage. In other words, one causes the other to lose hope even more. Neither is able to comfort the other a little by saying, hold on, our situation is not that serious. And then the elder says, I've seen this in many couples when characters are too much the same. So see, today what have they told us? Matchmaker.com. We have to be the same character. Same character. Same personality. I like chocolate eclairs. I want to find someone that eats chocolate eclairs. The only thing is they're both going to get diabetes at the end because they're both into chocolate eclairs. Who's going to put a hold? If the other one's on chocolate eclairs, excuse me, you know, you, you can't have chocolate eclairs day in and day out. They're different personalities. They can't have the, that's just a silly like example, that's what, but that's what happens. So this mentality that you have to have the same personality is actually wrong. When spouses have different personalities, it helps in the raising of children even more. One spouse wants to put on the brakes a little, but the other says, give the children a little freedom. If they both are overbearing, they will lose their children. So if both are saying, no, I don't want, I don't want the child to do that, and the other one's saying, I don't want the child to do that, then, then they, can, they can lose their children. There's too much strictness. If they are both overbearing, they will lose their children. If, however, they leave them on their own, again, their children will be lost. So if both of them are the character, oh, let them do what they want, the wife says, okay, they're all right. And the man says, let them do what they want. See, both the same character, not going to produce very good children. See, there's no, there's no balance there. Therefore, when the parents have different personalities, the children enjoy a certain stability. What I'm trying to say is, the elder says, that everything is needful. Naturally, one's personality quirks. Now, quirks means peculiarities in their character, you know, different characters, different things, shouldn't go beyond their limits. Each spouse should help the other in his own way. So that last part there is key to my talk that I did on 12, whom to marry and whom not to marry, which I mentioned in the beginning where I said in that talk, I spoke a lot about what other elders have said not to marry someone who's got this and got that and got that marry. Here he's saying, but if there's some differences, that's good. But you have to look. Look at what he's saying. Let's read it again. Naturally, one's personality, one, one's personality quirks shouldn't go beyond their limits. Be each spouse should help the other. Now, in that talk, I went back and I found my notes on that, and I'll tell you what I said, which I got from Elder, from some of these pamphlets here, Elder Emilia of Simono Petra, and another, uh, it says, number, this is one point that I said, moreover, if you want to have a, truthful, a truly successful marriage, don't approach that young woman or man who is unable to leave his or her parents. That's not a little quirk. That's a sickness. Okay, when you've got a spouse which is continually with their parents, they can't leave their parents, 
and they got to go there for milk or whatever they're going to go to. She has to give the milk to the to their son or whatever um, in the baby bottle. Then you know you've got a problem, right? That's a problem. When you see the other person tied to his father or mother, when you see that he obeys them with his mouth hanging open and is prepared to do whatever they tell him, keep well away. He is emotionally sick, a psychologically immature person, and you won't be able to create a family with him. That's not a little personality quirk. I remember I was dealing with a couple who, um, I met them after they got married, and um, the woman was saying to me, do you know that when we, when we uh, went to pick our bedroom suite and the furniture for our house, um, his, um, the husband, in other words, his parents had to come and we had to pick the ones that they wanted. Oh, just where was my bucket at that time? Um, so all their, all their furniture was picked by the parents. And then later on, when I was speaking to the husband, I found out that the husband had all these houses with their, like, like with his parents. And I said to him, does your wife know? He goes, no, because my father told me not to tell her. So he had a couple of houses, investment properties. He didn't even tell his wife. I said, sorry, look, if you want to come, this is before I need to confess, if you want to come to me, you've got to tell your wife about it. She was shocked that for 10 or 15 years that they were married, she didn't even know that he had these... It wasn't a mistress on the side, but, but, but per, um, uh, properties with, with, with the parents because mummy and daddy told him not to say it. And she had a lot of problems with him. Now, um, also, another point. Also, when you're going to choose a husband, make sure that he's not an uncommunicative type, in which case he'll have no friends. So sometimes uh, you, people, that, 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 they don't have any friends. And uh, I actually met a, a, a young lady that I was speaking to and she was saying that she met a guy who wasn't even orthodox, but anyway, it's another stupidity, but um, she said he doesn't have any friends and he said to her, I want, oh, you're going to be my friend, you're going to be... Anyway, the elder said he... Um, it, and if today he has no friends, tomorrow he'll find it difficult to have you as a friend and partner. Because when they don't have anyone, they can't communicate with anyone, it means there's something wrong. That's not a personality quirk. That's not a little, like a little fault. That's, that, that's, just, that's, that's a disaster. Another one. Be on your guard against grumblers, moaners and gloomy people who are like dejected birds. In other words, people that are constantly depressed. Be on your guard against those who complain all the time you don't love me, you don't understand me, and all that sort of thing. Something about those, these creatures of God isn't right, says Elder Emilianos of Simon Petra of the monastery. Now you might say, but isn't that like a... That's not a person. These people have got really deep psychological problems where they have to be told every second that they're loved. And when you don't say that, they become really um, horrendous. Now, what happens if you've married someone because you never asked God or whatever and you've married someone like that? Then that's a cross. That's it. If you're in that situation, you're in that situation, which is a cross. However, why uh, uh, put yourself through that if you already know up front that this person constantly has to be glued to you? Continually. Some women might be impressed and say, oh, what, that man... This, my boyfriend or my fiance, whatever, he always wants to be with me. That does he go? Does he have any friends? He goes, no, he always wants to be with me. What happens when they get married? 
that person becomes really paranoid and won't allow that woman to be with anyone, anyone at all. It will become really, and if she tries to get away from him or her, if it's in the case of someone like that, then she better watch out because, as you've known, she might get acid thrown in her face and other things which have happened, which we see on the news continually, of these possessive creatures who... that These are not personality quirks. Those, that is, who get upset over trivial things, who are critical of everything and hypersensitive, how are you going to live with such a person? It will be like sitting on thorns. I don't mean people that have that, but they still function, they still do their life, but they complain here and there, they've got problems. But when someone's like that continually, it's, you can't really have a marriage unless you're already in that situation, then it's a cross. Also, look out for those who regard marriage as something bad, as a form of imprisonment. Those who say, but I never in my whole life thought about getting married until I met you. Some of them say, I don't even want children. Why would you marry someone who doesn't want children? Whether male, male or female. See, don't get confused. That talk there had a lot of things about people that are irresponsible, but really extreme people. Not people that, okay, they're a bit lazy, but they work, but they might be a bit lazy in some things, whatever. Okay, that's a... But these are serious things. Financial irresponsibly, irresponsible, dysfunctional, mental illness, physical sickness and weakness. I've been reading lately a lot of elders which say to people, look, if you're not physically up to it, mentally or physically... He goes, you shouldn't get married. How are you going to have children? How are you going to take care of your family if you've got physical problems? And the elders actually don't bless those marriages. They say, no, we won't be able to keep the marriage. It'll be very difficult. Now, some people say, I remember one person who said um, about, about his wife and he said, I oh, my wife, you know, I know she's mentally ill. I know she's physically ill. I know she's got some spiritual problems, demonic problems, whatever, but I, but, I, but, I, but I love her and I want to marry her. And I said to him, you, you're, you, you should go to Luna Park and go on the rotor or something, to maybe your brains to get into shape. There's something wrong with you. That's not right. This woman that you're speaking about is a shipwreck. It's not fault of her own. She came from a very bad family. But she's a shipwreck. She will not be able to keep a marriage. But no, and I don't care, and I'm going to marry her, and this and that. Well, he married. She couldn't function at all. At all. So I'm say love will triumph. If you've got love for someone, it will work. Well, what happened to him? He couldn't do it. And that's how it is for most people. So that's the end of the... That's really... We only went through half of the talk. Yes? Alexi. I'm asking if a uh, if couple mm -hmm. is allowed to have secrets. Good point. Sometimes in a couple, within a married couple, some things, not because of evil reasons, sometimes I've noticed that uh, you've got to sometimes not say certain things to the other spouse because of certain issues, certain problems. It can set them off and cause disharmony. So that situation was the parent and the couple. But sometimes within the couple, we've got uh, two situations where, say, the man 
has a decision to tell his wife something which is honest and you know that's good or not say it if he does, if he does say it he knows that she'll explode if he doesn't say it then he's been he's not being truthful to his wife and he's keeping it a bit of a secret in that case, again, a discerning spiritual father has to realise, well, what is it that you don't want to say, that you're scared of? And the spiritual father goes, yes, I can see that. That is not going to be good for the marriage for you to say that particular thing. So to avoid disharmony, to avoid fights and the person going crazy, then it's better to say nothing, repent, and say to God, forgive me. God will see your heart. If you really are doing that, not because you've been evil and you're trying to you know, manipulate your wife or husband, but you're doing it for the sake of peace so that that person at that time can't take it, then you repent over that sin and go on with life and pray that God give you wisdom and enlightenment to know when and when you can say it, if, you know, if, if, if at all, depending. Sometimes you can't because some people are not, uh, can become emotionally disturbed and lose themselves and do things to themselves. You know, that, that it's, it might be dangerous. Even though it might be even a trivial point. Yes? I should say... Yeah. Uh, before we go on to that, I should say that in the future talks, I'm going to be speaking about when... situations where you can't have the same spiritual father because a lot of members of the family, including your spouse, might not want to be a church person. So at the end of the day, that, that of course, is the best scenario. If everyone goes, the whole family has the same spiritual father or the husband and wife have the same... That's the best scenario. But that doesn't always occur because one of the spouses might not believe. So in that case, then you've got one person that goes, it's harder, be nice for it to be both the same... But, or sometimes uh, the couple refuse to go to each other's and say, no, I want mine and you have your one. And a lot of times it's because they don't want the other spiritual father to know what's going on, you know, so they can do their middle manipulations. Uh, or they had that spiritual father for many years before they got married, they feel very close to it. The woman had another person and they say, I don't want to leave my spiritual father. So that's another step. However, back to your question. Um, you're a doctor, correct? So... People who are, as St. As John Chrysostom says, just like you look for the best doctor, you don't just go to any person, you find the best. You go and you ask people, which doctor do you go to? How are they? Are they interested? Do they listen? Yeah, he really listens and talks to you and asks you questions. Go, oh, really? My one doesn't even ask me anything. I don't even have time to warm the seat. I'm already out. I'm out. That's it. Out. We're holding a piece of paper. So why would you go to that person? The same as a spiritual father. Think, pray, look around and find the best of what you've got available and go to that person. Don't just pick people. And um, that elder John Christiankin, he, he, someone wrote to him in Russia and says, who should I go to? And they said, he said, don't pick anyone yet. This is a new person to the church. He goes, go around, confess to a few in the beginning, and then after you've done that, go to the person that you feel that your soul's comfortable, comforted, 
you feel that that person understands you, you feel close to that person, then stick to that person. You have to go straight away to a person, even if you heard that they're good. They might be good, but not good for you. Does that answer the question? Okay, so stand up. Through the prayers of the Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God of mercy, and save us. Amen.